This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning. It is Monday, May 8th. Hopefully you had a wonderful Cinco de Mayo weekend. Uh, I wish I had some Mexican food or something to celebrate, but unfortunately I didn't. And there's another holiday that we're not going to be able to celebrate, at least not the way that we had hoped. Today is Dr. Matt's birthday. And today we're Dr. Mattless. How sad is that? What a party pooper. Hopefully he's back here soon. But uh, yes, please send him a text, send him a tweet. Today is his birthday. He is either lying at home or lying in a hospital bed. So we wish him well. Just send him a tweet. Wish him a happy birthday. Oh, that's too bad. It's also No Socks Day. Another holiday I'm sure Matt is celebrating right about now. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the history of No Socks Day is. People that don't want to wear socks. <laughs> Quite eventful. Anyway, uh, this is the Matt Townsend Show, and we've got a great show for you today. We will have Joe Cannon, our Washington insider, here in just a minute. We'll also be speaking with uh, Kim Giles, who will be speaking to us about marriage, and Lisa Ferenc, who is a clinical social worker who is the author of Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behaviors. And uh, she'll be on during the 8 o'clock hour. So we have all that to look forward to, as well as speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, who are probably going to be talking to us about a lot of sweeps going on, and uh, not the not the broom kind, unfortunate, unfortunately. So we'll get to all that fun here in just a minute. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? 18 Penn State fraternity brothers were charged in the death of a Beta Thay Pi pledge. Timothy Piazza, who was found dead at the bottom of a flight of stairs after drinking too much alcohol. Prosecutors allege that the uh, the young man's fraternity brothers left him there for 12 hours while helping him after forcing him to drink alcohol, which caused him to fall down the stairs. The young man is 19 years old, allegedly had a blood alcohol level of 0.40. Text messages among the brothers allegedly suggested that others in the house knew of his dire condition but refused to help him and then tried to cover it up. They also faced charges of reckless endangerment and tampering with evidence. So, you know, frat houses. Stuff happens. I wonder wonder what uh, the university is going to do to step in. Usually what they end up doing is banning the frat and moving on and trying not to draw too much attention to it. American actor Steven Seagal has been banned from Ukraine for five years after being deemed a national security threat. The Ukraine Security Service has said in a letter that Seagal has committed socially dangerous actions that contradict the interests of maintaining Ukraine's security. The declaration likely stems from Seagal's praise of the Kremlin and his friendship with Russian President Vladimir Putin, who who has won Seagal's support on his actions such as the uh, annexation of Crimea, a move that was decried by the uh, international community. Seagal's support of Donald Trump last year's election and was granted Russian citizenship and a Russian passport recently in a highly publicized ceremony. No word on if his movies had anything to do with him being a national security threat. I, I, he ought to be banned for making any more movies, too. Just 
generally bad. Uh, Facebook has kicked its push for TV-like shows in the high gear and is aiming to premiere its slate of programming in mid-June. Multiple people familiar with the plans told Business Insider Facebook plans to have about two dozen shows for its initial push and has greenlit multiple shows for production. The social network has been looking into shows in two distinct tiers. A marquee tier for a new, a few longer big budget shows that would feel at home on a television and lower tier for shorter, less expensive shows for about five to ten minutes that would refresh every 24 hours. Is Bill O'Reilly going to be on Facebook? No, he may go somewhere else. Ah. There's other news that way, but it's just odd. You have hour-long shows probably, and then maybe some five- to ten-minute shows that you could just catch up on every once in a while. Are they going to be live? I don't know. Maybe some of them will. Hmm. thought we had YouTube for that, but they're they're trying to fix that. So we'll see what happens. And finally, uh, $145 million opening weekend for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. What did it do? It, it beat its 2014 original release by a 53%. It only made $94 million the first time out. Um... So yeah, it made a lot of money. It, it's the uh, among the sequels for the Marvel movies, the 88 percent increase for the only the only movie that performed better when it came to its sequel was Captain America. Mm. So the Captain America mm-hmm. went from Civil War to Winter Soldier, and there was an eighty eight percent increase between those two opening weekends. So this is their second best opening or opener ever, um, just below the 147 million from fast or the latest fast and furious movie so yeah it's doing well and vin diesel is in both is in both he's got the top two spots at the box office okay it's time terry what did you think of the film it was good (laughs) it was funny it was good it was funny stuff blew up better than the first i don't know you watch them both and you're like "They, they both tell their story it's fine do you think any of any of the five post-credit scenes did anything to add to the film? Um, no, no. They're, they they didn't add to the film. They didn't add to any more films down the road. It was just sort of more stuff. They keep putting. I ha- found them quite interesting, but that's just for other reasons than sure. the actual movie. So, Cole, did you see it? Not as of yet. Not as of yet. I noticed that uh, Howard the Duck made another appearance. Yep. He floated by briefly, which was fine. <laughs> everyone, the first time it came out, everyone thought that uh, they, they were going to redo. That meant Howard the Duck was coming, another movie. And he's like, no, I just, the, the, the director's I just like Howard the Duck. He does, yeah. He just sort of tosses him in. So. I thought it was pretty good, too. I... Uh... I I just can't help shake this feeling when I'm watching Marvel movies these days that they're all kind of just the same. Okay. I enjoyed it. So you hate fun. It was funny. You hate anything fun. It was fun. I was in the one seat in the theater, though, that did not recline. None of the seats in my entire theater reclined. So I you, found that you to can be a feel bonus. my pain. No, I don't like when they recline. I tend to fall asleep. You know, my, I don't want to watch a movie in a bed. I'll go home and sit in my bed and watch a movie. Well, they they only make them so that you can recline just enough that you don't fall asleep. But I can't Except recline. I fall asleep. So oh, I I just can't drink my soda in a reclining seat. I have don't to get a soda. I've got to put the seat all the way back up to its upright position, drink, and then go back to the reclining Consume position. Consume beverages and eat before. You don't have that problem. You have to pay the higher prices either. I also feel like a bendy straw might solve that problem. That too. Oh. Hmm. 
Hey, all kinds of solutions out there for you. Did you notice Jeff Goldblum in the post-credit dancing scene where all the different characters were dancing? His character from Thor 3? The Collector? No, the Grandmaster. Is that the Grandmaster. Grand there you go. Here. No. Ooh, sounds like you need to go see it again. No, I, can you, I mean, at this believe. point, can you differentiate between any of the five post-credit scenes? Like, which ones yeah. are the funniest? Four, then two, then three, then five, well, then no, one? I mean, there were Sylvester Stallone's in the movie. <laughs> yes. And that whole thing was – I mean, there's a whole backstory to that, which makes it more in- interesting than what was actually in the scene. And you have to go read into, like, Wikipedia pages to truly understand where he came from. We need to do an entire episode breaking down each one of the five post-credits scenes. There's Stan Lee, who keeps showing up. Yeah. And there's a whole arc with why that's important. That was important? I thought it was vastly. just kind of a joke. No, vastly, because it, it, it establishes him as a character throughout all 15 movies. But we already— Not, not we, just Stan Lee popping in. But we already knew— that he was in all these. Well, I know, films. but there's a reason. Oh, I see. And it's a mm. deeply comic book geek thing that it used I to found just be fun. Interesting. <laughs> and now you have to read Wikipedia to know what it is. Yeah. Ah. So that you but, can impress your friends with the knowledge that you didn't have until you read it like five minutes it's ago. It's also yeah. why they do it because they're trying to appeal to different people. I mean, you can just have the surface humor of it all, but then there's the deeper story if you want to get into that. You know what I don't understand is. Half the movie theater, like right when the movie ended, got up and left. And I thought, there's no way they don't know that there are a bunch of different post-credit scenes. Yeah. I don't get it. There's been 15 movies. They all have these scenes. Just sit there. And then, you know, after the first and second post-credit scenes, you still have people leaving. Maybe they didn't like them. I don't know. But it's like, isn't that kind of common knowledge now? Yeah. I mean, you can also – I usually just jump on – like I knew going in there was was going to be – Post-credit scenes, but you can look it up because by the time – well, by the time I see it, it's Saturday. So the movie has been out for two days almost, Thursday, right. Friday. And so all these blog posts have gone up explaining what all these scenes are. <laughs> so you can check and see if there's any scenes in a movie and leave. I will admit so I don't, don't I don't think I would have known there were going to be five until I heard it from you on the right. show. That's why I announced it. It was a public service. Thank you. I need you... to let people know because it's, it's part of the entire <laughs> movie experience to see the entire show. Well, we appreciate your service here on the Matt Townsend I, Show. I do what I can. <laughs> Anything else that we need to get to before we talk to Joe? Uh, I don't know if we need to get to it, but we're going to get to it because why real scientists think aliens would never eat humans. Hmm. I found that to be a very compelling title. Now, this is good timing because there is another alien movie coming out. Yeah, right. So they're saying uh, they give us uh, – in the article, it gives us uh, a bunch of myths – that come from Hollywood and movies, basically about things like why aliens wouldn't come to Earth to attack us. Yeah. Right? So you had, a, what, Mars Attacks, that movie where they're like, we come in peace, and then they just shoot everyone at the ray I love that movie. Yeah. They, they don't feel that would happen because of the distance that these aliens would have to travel to get here and the effort they'd have to put forth to get here. Why would you come here just to destroy everything? You'd be hopefully interested in what's here. Humans are not worth the effort. To come and just destroy <laughs> us all. So, And they said uh, aliens harvesting you know, humans are some sort of unpleasant prospect, but it doesn't track with the science of nutrition, and they go into all that. Um, aliens, uh, w- one other myth was they said that aliens would look exactly like us. 
Really? They said the, uh, it, it would be unlikely because we look a certain way be, because of our environment. It helps to kind of – we adapt. Mm-hmm. You know, bodies and, and things look certain ways because of the environment you're in. They come from something possibly completely different. Yeah. So maybe they would look different. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean we're making this assumption that they'd look just like us or they'd be some green thing. You know, We make all these assumptions and probably they would look – different but not i don't know how how crazily different they were hmm. well they're not um, taking into effect that when they came to help build the pyramids that they brought some earthlings back to their planet exactly. and then those descendants are gonna be yeah, coming exactly to... stargate is real they just don't know that's right <laughs> um they said aliens would be living creatures that would be a myth really scientists huh. believe that, that if aliens came here they would likely just send a robot Oh. With a camera, and that's how we'd communicate with them is through this robot. It wouldn't actually be them. So we'd have like a Skype session with them. Possibly. Okay. But think about that. In the future, we send out pros and we just send a robot, and that's how we make contact with somebody. We wouldn't actually go along just as it's such a long distance. Makes me want to take another look at Rod Gustafson, who always uh, speaks with us via Skype. Right. And then aliens would steal our water and metal. Right. There's this other storyline really? through Hollywood movies that they come here to steal all of our resources. Ah, uh, so they're one of those scrap collectors. Like Independence Day, famously, they arrived to strip the Earth of its resources. But again, that logic doesn't add up. Most of our metal is in the Earth's core. It's not on the crust. Asteroids would be far better targets. Well, to, in to Cowboys and Aliens, from. they came for the gold. Oh, and right. we definitely have the gold. Don't Don't say those words... In the same sentence, you could go to Jupiter's moons, who apparently have a lot of water. They have a lot of ore and things on it. They don't have the gravitational pull here, so it would be easier to get that, you know, the elements out. You know, they don't have pesky humans to get in the way. There's no way that somebody hasn't seen an alien, because otherwise, why would all of the depictions of aliens in movies be the same? Like, why would they all look the same? Well, because we've all coalesced behind one lie. Hmm. Of the grays. I see. Or the greens. So it's not possible that no one's ever seen an alien. <laughs> I'm, you know, who knows? I always leave it open because I think it could possibly happen, but it seems kind of odd that everyone has the same story. So if an alien appears, just guard your water and your metal. No, they're not coming here for that. Oh, they're not. There's an easy, there, like I was saying, there's easier. They go to asteroids. They go to a moon or something where there's nothing but lots of ore, lots of water. Well, now, now that's my biggest fear because you put it into my head. Really? Well, like okay. uh, snake clowns, like Batman said in Lego Batman. Scientists, they're saying in that article, they believe that they'll come here in peace. They'll come here to have an exchange of ideas and try to figure us out. I think that's what an alien would say. I know. Or a scientist who thinks they're, they have a lot Whoa. to offer an alien. Maybe the Luckily, aliens have infiltrated our scientists. They could. Well, we know Terry's not an alien because he's speaking to us live and in person and not via Skype. Anyway, yeah, so you don't need to worry about your brains. Just worry about your water and your metal when the aliens appear. Only the information that you would hear on the Matt Townsend show and only on Matt Townsend's birthday. By the way, it is Dr. Matt's birthday. We'll celebrate this all day, even if he's not here, the party pooper. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll speak with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, who's going to be talking to us about uh, an eventful weekend when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away on his birthday of all days. We're speaking with Joe Cannon here, who's our Washington insider. He was chairman of the uh, chairman of the Utah Republican Party from 2002 to 2006, and he's also the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. You can find out more about uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation at fuelfreedom.org. Joe Cannon, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You know, I wish we had uh, some Dodger talk, but uh, it was a rain delay, unfortunately. I know. Yeah, they'll probably play a couple of games today. I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, I guess that's a good thing because but there the is... Dodgers are they're on, they're on a little bit of a hot streak, however. They, they, they're showing some good stuff in the last few games. And Bellinger, who keeps hitting all these home runs, he hit a grand slam. He's 21 years old. Yeah, no, he could, he's the big surprise. I mean, he was brought up kind of temporarily, but I doubt very much he's going back down to the minors. Right. And even Puig is starting to uh, to step up these days. Yep, yep. He has hit into a bunch of double plays, which is sort of weird. But, but yeah, he's, uh, he's getting on base quite a bit, and his batting is going move, improving. Well, his, his fielding has been pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have plenty to talk about the Dodgers throughout the season. Um, You know, it doesn't matter if they didn't play last night because over the weekend we had a ton of stuff happening, especially in politics. And I understand that you want to start off by talking to us about Obamacare and the the Trump care passing the House. Right. Well, I'm just going off the list of subjects, and I thought we'd start off on on that one. Yeah, yeah. The... uh... Yeah, the House passed this bill, and um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not saying much that kind of regular commentators aren't are you saying, but I, I think Trump played a very substantial role in making this happen. And I think everybody across the spectrum gives him credit for that. But, uh, and so there are a lot of people think, well, wow, Obamacare has been repealed, but actually it's just the House bill. And a lot of things have to go right for that to become law, and they're not likely to. The, the Senate, of course, is uh, they're reviewing the House bill as, quote, a rough draft. Uh, so, you know, it's just uh, it, in the Senate, uh, you've got a lot of pro-repeal sentiment, but you've also got just a very different set of senators that that are going to make a big difference in this, and and it's important to keep in mind that there's a, only a fairly thin majority of Republicans. So even if you get it through on a 51, you know, on a majority vote, you've got a few Republicans that could easily defect, and those would be some moderates could defect, and some of the more conservatives could defect. You could have a, a Mike Lee, a Rand Paul, a Ted Cruz. That's three votes right there, and that's that's all it needs to the scales. On the other side, uh, you, you have two or three Republicans. On the other hand, an important variable in this is the um, so-called red state Democrats. That's the seven or eight Democrats that are up in states that Trump won, some of which significantly, and they're very vulnerable, and some of them have indicated a willingness to to work with them with the uh, Republicans uh, if they get some of the things they want. So it's much more cloudy, but just kind of a mechanical thing that may, maybe 
all you readers or listeners uh, know this who had some kind of civics class, but unfortunately a lot didn't. So the House passes a bill, then it goes to the Senate, then the Senate passes a bill. Sometimes the Senate just passes the same bill. In this case, the Senate has already said, no, we're going to write our own bill. So now you have two separate bills. Then those two bills go to what's called a conference committee made up of representatives of each body. If that if that conference committee then agree well that that conference committee either agrees on a bill or they don't but if they agree on a bill it has to be the identical bill that goes back to both houses and if either or both houses don't pass that bill then there's no change so a lot of things there there are a lot of steps in this process before there is a change and I just you know just to illuminate a couple of or, some of these issues, it's not just uh, conservative versus moderate. The kind of the Senate has identified sort of five key issues here, all of which have um, sort of traditional respected Republican support. So, for example, Medicaid expansion. So Obamacare allowed the states to expand Medicaid to uh, low income um, citizens. 31 states adopted that. And in the Senate, you've got Senator Heller from Nevada and Senator Portman from Ohio who have made a very big point out of this. Uh, so they, they don't want to vote for a package that eliminates um, that Medicaid expansion. I don't know, maybe getting too much in the, in the weeds here, but the other issues are tax credits, um, also the insurance coverage. You're, under under the House bill, some people argue that 24 million people would be without coverage. That, you know, worrying about that coverage issue are, again, some centrist Republicans. You've got pre, the pre-existing condition issue, which, again, uh, is Heller from Nevada and Cassidy from Louisiana. And then you've got essential health care benefits, maternity, substance abuse, mental health. And that issue has a number of, again, I'll say centrist Republicans. So, there, there's going to be a lot of changes to this, uh, to the House bill, and we'll just see how how that works out. But, you know, uh, I guess the main thing to note is the House bill is um, not the end and not the beginning of the end. But as Winston Churchill said, it might be the end of the beginning. Yeah. To, um, talk about uh, Obamacare. So, anyway. Joe. So, Joe, we know that. Uh like you mentioned, there there are some Republicans that that take issue with with certain portions of Trump care. How much? Why don't we hear too much about Democrats having beef with Obamacare? Or be you know because we read that you know all of these Democrats are saying we're not we're not even going to take a look at Trump care. Are there any Democrats out there that you know I actually take issue with certain aspects of Obamacare? Yeah, well, none in the House, apparently. <laughs> I mean, that was a, 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 you know, total. All the Democrats voted against the House bill, I think. I'm pretty sure that's true. And a few Republicans voted against it. So that's why it was so narrow. It was just a couple of votes, I guess. Um, in the Senate, there are Democrats, actually, that are questioning certain parts of Obamacare, especially those red state Democrats. Now, they're still Democrats. They're still going to want something. They're going to want to pull that bill back, pull the House bill closer to the to Obamacare. Like on, on those five issues, uh, there are quite a lot of Democrats who have 
you know, similar views to Republicans on those issues. So it's, I think I think you'll see a more bipartisan uh, approach in the Senate, unless it just goes off the rails, and then the Democrats in the Senate could say what they did in the House: "We're no Democrat is going to support this. We're going to hope to pull uh, three or more Republicans to the Democrat side." Uh, and then blame the whole thing on Republicans, which is what the Republicans did when Obamacare passed. Not a single Republican in either house voted for Obamacare. Right. They made that, and they made that the, the midterm election issue, and were successful, uh, basically, uh, in significant part because of that. The Democrats kind of hoped for a replay, going the other direction. Yeah. And Joe, thanks again for for explaining the process to us. Yeah, because this is like a one third of the of the entire process. It's a bill, as you said. So, in the eyes of of just the average American, though, who may see this as a, already a victory for Trump, how do you think this is going to affect Trump's approval rating? Wow, that's. So that's so hard to say right now. I mean, his his approval rating, just the most recent approval ratings were, uh, well, the average of all approval ratings, according to Real Clear Politics, is 43.1 approve of, of Trump, 51.8 disapprove. The most recent of the polls is the Gallup poll, which shows uh, 40% approve and 54%. So it's even a wider uh, you know, 14% variance. Uh, but even more significant than the raw numbers are the, um, what are called, so when you ask that question, lots of polls will say, do you strongly approve, somewhat approve, somewhat disapprove, strongly disapprove? In a number of these polls, those strongly approve versus strongly disapprove are at even much wider gulf. And, and that's what really determines, drives election turnout. So, um, yeah, so he, he's, he's, uh, he's hurting in the approval rate, and that's a key, key. It's hard to overstate how key that variable is, although it is only a variable when it comes to midterm elections. But, but right now, you're, you're not seeing a big trend up. And in that Gallup survey, you're seeing a trend down in approval and up in disapproval. Yeah, uh, when they, when they do their longitudinal, they they look at all their surveys and the disapproves are going up and the approves are going down. In, in again in the Gallup survey, Joe, what do you think of those surveys? In your opinion, are those are those a good enough gauge to to help us understand you know the president's approval? You know the strongly approve, strongly disapprove. You know it seems like there are seven or eight different. Uh, things that you can describe his his presidency as. I, I'm wondering if that's the correct way to gauge that. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say because uh, in the strongly approve are Trump's base, and then that's a pretty good base. And the fact is, he's president, even though he had pretty similar disapproval ratings before the election. Which that that's why I emphasized. Approve the approval rating. Well, to answer your question, I actually think the approval rating is pretty good. They've been the various pollsters over many long years have been doing approve, disapprove, and that's been a pretty reliable gauge. Uh, so I don't, I don't, uh, and the one variation I mentioned is 
uh, it's probably a little more handy to look at strongly approved versus strongly disapproved because there you get the intensity uh, of support or opposition. Having said that, uh, as I as I mentioned, uh, uh, Trump had pretty bad uh, disapproval or approval ratings going into the election, and he won because another big variable is who who you're running against and what are the issues that the other people are running on. So you could get. Uh, you know, a, a disparity there because Democrats also have fairly low approval ratings. And yeah. um, and so, anyway, there's more to be said on that. But the answer to your, your main question is, I think the approval rating polling over time has been pretty accurate, pretty consistent. Yeah. So, Joe, I just want to – I know you wanted to talk about the midterm elections. It says here – this is from Politico. In every midterm election since 2002, the party in the White House has lost congressional seats. So based on that data and what we're seeing going on right now, does it look like Republicans are going to be vulnerable uh, during the the midterm elections? Well, I think so. You know, you've got the bad fact of uh, President Trump's approval rating. You've got the fact that every House district is up. How the House and the Senate are different. We should talk about, you know, the their, their variations on that theme. But just sticking with the House for a second, you've got a number of, of states, I think, or uh, uh, districts, I think it's, you know, in the mid-20s where Republican House members won, but Hillary Clinton won their same district. So you could say those are some pretty vulnerable uh, seats right off right off the bat, because you have plenty of voters who voted for their their local person who they knew. And, you know, generally incumbents have a a pretty, pretty good uh, chance. But they voted for the opposite party when it came to the president. And those voters, this is where the strongly agree, strongly disagree makes a difference because the uh, the anti-Trump voters are much more energized in, well, in those, in those districts, there's a chance of having a higher percentage of highly energized Democrat voters coming out against the, uh, against the uh, Republican incumbent. And so depending on the candidates, we're going to see in in, in just a little while, one of those districts um, is in Georgia and they're having a a special election. And you've got a a Democrat who got 48 percent of the votes and the Republicans, I think there were six or seven, seven or eight split the other 52. So now we're going to see if those 52 come together for the for the one challenge for the one Republican uh, contender or. Uh, if the intensity of the Democrat voters in that district could put the uh, the Democrat over. So to, to, we'll see that, I think, next month. So you've got a you've got a number of seats that are that are vulnerable right now. And you could have a wave. And the, you mentioned those those numbers. But if you look at 1994, uh, 2010, 2014, you had big enough changes to change the party so that the Republicans took over in 94, 2010, and 2014. Not just they picked up seats, they actually took over the chamber, and chambers in a couple of cases. And then the same thing happened, though, in 2006 to George Bush, uh, another midterm election where he lost enough seats to give control back to the Democrats. 
So these could be in the House more like a wave election, more like a national referendum. Uh, Senate is is a little different, obviously. But, but this this midterm coming up, you've got uh, thirty four senators, overwhelmingly Democrat senators, and as I mentioned earlier, six or seven of those Democrats are in states that Trump won, and in some cases handily. So uh, some of those senators are vulnerable. So even with an unpopular president. You could still have in those red states some of those Democrat incumbents losing. The question is, does the do Republicans pick up zero, one or two, or do they pick up five or six? And I think that that the president's approval rating probably matters in in how in limiting the amount of uh, upside for Republican Senate candidates. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, Joe, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Uh, We'll return here in just a moment. We're speaking with Joe Cannon, who is our Washington insider and the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. We'll take a quick break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, and we're speaking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. And we spent the first part of the interview talking about uh, Trump care passing in the House and also the midterm elections. And, uh, Joe, I was hoping now we could talk about the other uh, bit of news <laughs> that uh, that is the French election. And really, I mean, in this election that we had over here, Obviously, an outsider, a political outsider, went on to win the presidency, and it looks like we're kind of seeing a bit of the same in France. Well, yeah. I mean, their their system is quite a bit different from our system, and what it produced after its, you know, its uh, kind of preliminary elections is yet two outsiders be, became the got enough votes to be the two candidates, and. Um, Although one of the outsiders is less of an outsider than the other one. So you had Le Pen, uh, who has a very strong heritage. Her father was a very famous and very uh, right-wing, uh, you know, uh, maybe anti-Semitic and for certain very strongly anti-immigration uh, uh, positions. His daughter tried to move away from that a little bit and kind of distance herself from her father and even her own party at the end. She ended up getting 35% of the vote. And uh, Macron, I don't know how you pronounce that. I didn't do very well. After three years of French in high school, I still can't uh, do well in French. I think the rule is uh, with French, you just drop the N and you're good to go. (laughs) So in any case, he he won by a greater margin than the polls predicted. Uh, so it's, it's interesting because he himself was running as a, you know, I better, I think the best way to say it is sort of a uh, centrist reformer against basically a nationalist right wing group, and France sort of reverted to its mean. Um, so it's, a, it's you know, 
mostly it was a rejection of Le Pen, I think, as opposed to a pro uh, Macron. Interesting, vote. but but he's he's he has proposed some pretty significant uh, changes. You know, France has I don't know how many Americans know this. It's illegal to work over 35 hours in a week in France. And so a lot of kind of, I will call them normal, economically-minded candidates for for some period of time have been campaigning against that 35-hour work week. And it, so far, it hasn't happened. It's been around for, I don't know, since the late you know, 1990s, I guess. So... Uh, he's also promised some economic reforms. He's sort of a, you know, he's not ne- not nearly a Thatcherite, but he is saying, look, we have to have some reform in taxes. Um, so he, you know, it's he, he's relative to France, a conservative uh, uh, prime minister now, a uh, president, and he's. It'll be interesting to see how. So now there are state there there are these provincial elections coming up that will determine what he has to work with uh, from a legislative standpoint. But you know he's he's looking for reforms, but still wanting to stay within the French world. So he's still a supporter of the European Union. He's still um, he's still kind of mildly anti-American, uh, sort of makes nice with Russians. He says, like, uh, Frenchmen since de Gaulle, you know, we don't want America to dictate our foreign policy. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of his positions are, you know, fairly um, consistent, even with some of Trump's positions. So uh, it's, an, it's interesting in, this, in the sense that their system threw up two candidates that were not from the mainstream or even the regular left and right parties. Yeah. Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on this because obviously we saw it here in the United States with Trump winning. He's not, you know, not in politics. And uh, now we're kind of seeing this with, with Emmanuel Macron. But is this a trust issue or is this a, an issues issue? That is to say, are people just not... Do they not trust politicians anymore, or do they feel like politicians are not representing their interests? Yeah. So it's probably a combination of both, but you've seen in Britain, in France, and even a little bit in Germany, and of course the United States, you've seen movements against the the reigning orthodoxy. So people are saying, look, we've trusted in France. We've trusted either of these parties for a long time, and we keep disintegrating. We, our economy, the economy was the, by a long way the biggest issue, more, more than immigration and more than terrorism in France. But a similar you know, batch of issues. And in France, they said, look, we've trusted these two main parties for a long time, and that hasn't worked. Let's try something new. So they went, you know, kind of far to the right edge of things, and they took a centrist but not establishment guy. Same thing happened in in Britain, both with the election of their prime minister May, and then also Brexit. Well, those are both referendum referenda on uh, the status quo, which had not been producing economic growth. In the United States, we had eight years of stagnant growth. Forget about who 
you know, the, the partisan aspects of that, you just had stagnant growth, A, and B, you know, long period of time where there was sort of a ruling orthodoxy that didn't seem to be producing much, and it seemed to be at the expense of people not in the sort of shishi blue cities of New York and Washington and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago. You had a lot of people saying, that system is not working for us. And you had the right guy at the right time with the right message to those disaffected voters. And on the other hand, you had a candidate of, of the establishment basically saying, elect me, and you get uh, uh, the next term of President Obama. So while each of those things can be, each of those elections can be sort of parsed out on their own, I think collectively it shows that a lot of people in a lot of democratic countries are, are wondering if politics as usual is going to get us where we need to go. And in all, in all those the three, the three cases for sure of the United States, France, and Britain, an answer was, let's try something a little bit new. And in Germany, there are rumblings about that, but so far Merkel seems to be pretty strong. Yeah, and you know, you hope there's some education behind that as far as the voters are concerned, because it seems like it's a kind of a dangerous way of thinking, well, this didn't work, so let's just go with the guy that's proposing something new and not really knowing what they want. Uh, wow, that sounds a little dangerous. Uh, it could be, but you got to say, you got to argue that if you were uh, an American in, you know, Moline, Illinois, uh, or Peoria, where there's a caterpillar plant, if you're, you're, you know, vast parts of this country have been pretty damaged economically. So I don't think you know, the fact that, you know, some Midwest um, a steel worker can't articulate various individual issues as well as somebody in Washington, D.C. Right. They can still say, well, wait a sec, we have a problem here. We have a problem, and a bunch of people have failed to fix that problem. And uh, that's where the Tea Party movement came, and that, that movement uh, ended up in a guy like Donald Trump, who himself isn't you know, particularly focused on individual issues. Um, but a general is sort of a zeitgeist to say, hey, we're going in the wrong direction. And that, that appealed to a lot of voters. And it's not just American voters. It's appealing to voters uh, in other democracies. Well, Joe Cannon, we really appreciate you each and every week here on the Matt Townsend Show. And we'll speak again next week. And uh, who knows, maybe during the next election we'll hear some uh, we'll hear somebody talk about a 35-hour-a-week work week. Oh, might be nice. <laughs> We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue the fun celebrating Matt Townsend's birthday here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show, where we're celebrating Dr. Matt's birthday, but without Dr. Matt. And uh, to celebrate, Terry South is going to tell us about 14 foods you can eat as much of as you want. Matt is constantly trying to diet. Yes. Um, I think it's in word only. Yeah. I think he leaves here and eats donuts. It's That's always my own personal opinion. It's always a way of him trying to figure out how he can eat as much bacon as he wants. Yes. Yeah. And he has to just realize at some point that... <laughs> 
You can't. <laughs> so the problem I have with this list, okay, right off the bat, is it gives you three different uh, sort of setting the table for or you know ideas before you get into the food. Right. So you kind of understand where they're coming from. First off, these foods are mostly made up of water. Okay. Okay. They're low in calories. Mm-hmm. They contain fiber, which helps you make make you feel and stay full. Yes. Right. Those are the bonuses, I guess. Those are the the quality, uh, the high points of these. So the first one they have is celery. Celery. You can eat as much celery as you want and will not gain weight because it's basically it says here ninety five percent water. I can't eat it unless it's in a soup. I just can't eat it. It's to me, it's just gross. It's it's stringy, watery. Just, yeah, it's evil. It's evil. I saw a woman grab a whole bag of celery at the store, and I'm like, "Why are you doing that to yourself?" I would eat that over a water chestnut, though. Is right. that on there? No. Unless number uh, two on the list is ranch dressing, then no. number one yeah, doesn't right. really matter. <laughs> number two is kale, <sighs> which is the thing that used to decorate the salad bar. We're now already we're going in the it. wrong direction with this list. <laughs> right, right. Uh, raw kale only has about 33 calories per serving. Okay. Yeah. Uh, blueberries. All right. Okay. So, you know, they, they have antioxidants in them. True. Just like my wife keeps telling me about uh, dark chocolate. Now, can blueberry can blueberries turn your skin uh, blue like carrots can turn your skin orange if you eat too many of them? Um, I have no idea. Hmm. No idea. Cucumbers. Yes. Right? So you could do a cucumber. You could have that 16 calories per serving. Again, I, I think they're a little better with ranch dressing, though. Again, mostly water, and yeah, and you need the dressing, and it just <laughs> kind of ruins it once you do the dressing. Um, tomatoes. Yeah. They contain lycopene, which is the fun Ooh, fact that they get I for I can't it. get enough lycopene. Um, also a bunch of A and vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin B2, a bunch of other stuff. So they're, they're, they're maybe a superfood. Yes. So you can tell yourself that so you feel like you're doing something important. <laughs> grapefruits, mostly water, Ugh. 50 calories for one half of a grapefruit, if you like that. No. Broccoli. Yes, like, I like broccoli. I, I like broccoli yeah. in certain situations. Again, with cheese. Again, ruining the broccoli. <laughs> uh, cantaloupe. It's kind of a cumber. 90% water in cantaloupe, 55 calories a serving. Cauliflower. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. even better than broccoli in my opinion. But again, you want to dip it in something. You don't just eat cauliflower. It is good with cheese. My wife makes pizza dough out of it. That's pretty good. Oh. Uh, blackberries. Lettuce is on the list. Lettuce is just water. Yeah. Uh, oranges, strawberries, and oh, honeydew. Yeah. Mm, honeydew. Honey so, don't. Uh, again, you got some melons. You got a bunch of vegetables, fruits. But carrots wasn't on there, eh? No. I told my wife last night, I said, if it wasn't for me... You would be an Oompa Loompa right now because wow. when we were dating, she was That's eating strong so many carrots. I said, Or I said, you could be President Trump right now. Wow. She was eating so many carrots that her skin really was turning orange. Wow. So I told her, you need to stop. Yeah, back off. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to go you, home and you, have some cauliflower. Use some bronzer. Though. Just don't eat carrots if you want to be orange. I did see some bronzing type spray in our bathroom this morning. Who knows? Maybe Interesting. that's what's happening. Yeah. All right. Well, you heard that list. It's an important list. Go gorge yourselves on all those 14 foods that you can eat as much as you want. And uh, you won't, uh, I don't know if he, I don't think he said you won't gain weight, but you can eat as much as you want. And they're healthy. That's how we're going to celebrate Matt's birthday here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning, everyone. It is Monday, May 8th here on the Matt Townsend Show and pretty much everywhere else for that matter. But uh, something that we that is unique to this show today is that we are celebrating Dr. Matt Townsend's birthday. And uh, we're celebrating it without him because he is not feeling well. So he's probably got his feet kicked up somewhere, laying down and celebrating, as well as his birthday, he's also celebrating No Socks Day. So uh, as long as there's nobody else around, feel free to celebrate No Socks Day, just in case there's an odor issue. But that wouldn't that wouldn't apply to you, I'm sure. Anyway, good morning. We're having a great time here. We just finished speaking with Joe Cannon, our Washington insider. And later on this hour, we're going to be speaking with Lisa Ferentz, who is the author of the book Finding Your Ruby Slippers, uh, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. And I'm looking at the book right now, and it's got a, a cute pair of ruby sneakers on it with a <laughs> on a yellow brick road. So be sure to check that out, uh, especially after we speak with our guest, uh, Lisa Ferentz, later on on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll also be talking about a parent who I'm sure felt like a horrible parent or at least was panicked by something that happened to her toddler and her car. So how's that for a tease? Uh, Also, a mix-up at a funeral home. And this one, I really really feel sorry for the family and also for the funeral home because it, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's the type of mix-up that is typical or that is understandable, but hopefully... uh, (laughs) Hopefully uh, there could be some forgiveness there. Anyway, just a couple of teases to get your creative juices flowing and thinking ahead of what's up on the show. But uh, first and foremost, we want to turn things over to Terry South, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's going on? Nearly 400 migratory birds of brilliant plumage, as the article says, was killed were killed when they smashed into a, a tower office building in Texas while flying in a storm. This happened on Friday. Office workers arrived at the tallest skyscraper in downtown Galveston on Thursday morning, found the birds with feathers of blue, green, yellow, and other hues dead on the ground. The picture, just a big pile of birds that all hit in the same place and fell to the ground. Um, so it says the birds were coming from Central and South America and arrived in the coastal city of Galveston, likely fatigued from their flight over the Gulf of Mexico. The birds migrate to several areas across North America during the warmer months of the year. More than 20 species were represented among the 395 birds that died. The biggest group were Nashville warblers, followed by Blackberrian warblers. Okay, admit it. If you came warblers, to work warblers. and you just saw a pile of dead birds... Yeah. You would start freaking out thinking that the zombie apocalypse Something. is about to start. Something. That's a sign, right? Ugh. Other than maybe it happens. But it's yeah. just sort of an odd situation. <laughs> a bunch of birds. Maybe the windows there. were a little too clean. Over the weekend, Olympian distance runner Eulid Chipoge. Chip Choge. Chip, yeah, Chip Choge. One of those is right, I'm Of sure. Kenya, yeah. Uh, came just shy of running a sub-two-hour marathon. Nearly accomplishing one of the most anticipated feats in sports... The runner completed the 26.2-mile race in just 2 hours and 25 seconds. Is that good? No one has ever ran a sub-2-hour marathon, ever. 
See, I don't know because the only marathon I've ever, you know, tried to do is like a, a Netflix marathon. Right. His time isn't eligible to set a new world record because he had a pace car, but it shaves more than two minutes off the current world record of two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds. Hmm. So when you're dealing with distance running and you, I mean, that's a lot of time to cut off uh, yeah. the best time. So his previous best was two hours, three minutes. So they uh, picked a guy. He's part of Nike's Breaking Two project, which has developed high-tech shoes and an innovative pacing formation. No word of if it's like the Flying V or something. It's just some sort mm. of formation he runs to cut down on, on minimize wind resistance. So hopefully he's, he's going to get an endorsement deal out of this. Well, he does. He's on the team. Oh, Nike. okay. To gotcha. successfully break two hours, a runner must maintain a pace of four minutes, 34 seconds per mile, which is insane. So at what point do you just say, you know what? I'm good with the current record that I have. Like, at what no, point do you stop pushing, pushing yourself? You just keep going. Wow. Every marathon runner looks extremely healthy to me. Yeah? And when they cross that line and you see them just kind of fall to the ground and can't, like, talk. There was a marathon <laughs> um, in... Uh, I went and interviewed marathon runners after they finished a marathon, and I, we were doing, like, live radio coverage. Think about that. Radio coverage of a marathon. Wow. <sighs> Boring. Bunch but of breathing. You run over, and you try to interview somebody, and they're just, they can't breathe. They can't right. think. And you're trying to say, hey, how was that? They just, they have nothing to say at that moment. So well, you try to come back later. They're but. so fit because they're so obsessed with running that they yeah. don't have time to eat. Apparently, well, they eat quite a bit. They just I guess burn they it all running. To. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Have you ever wanted to feel the force of an explosion, the sting of a pirate's sword, or as this says, an elf's gentle caress. No, no, and probably. If you're already spending a lot of time in virtual reality goggles, you'll love Hardsight's VR suit. Costs $549, has 16 haptic feedback zones that ha- that send direct vibrations to individual muscle groups. So it's an entire suit head-to-toe for virtual reality. So you're telling me I only have to pay $550 to know what it feels like to be stabbed? Right. It says Mm. it'll ship in September. The suit connects to VR goggles and a a, a personal computer. Though it isn't the first haptic suit, it's an advance. It says here, it's cool to know that soon we'll be able to encase in what looks like a dirt bike dirt bike armor as we flail around our living rooms dodging you know you know airplanes and drone fire and monsters and that kind of stuff in virtual wow. reality would you pay 550 for that no no yeah mainly because my wife wouldn't <laughs> now if my wife wasn't part of the situation probably absolutely oh mrs south yeah come on let me have some fun And finally, for Romans, the daily commute will never be the same again. uh, On Friday, they unveiled a brand new underground station, so a subway, that boasts a trove of archaeological treasures that were found during its construction. They range from iron spearheads to gold coins decorated with emperor's heads to delicate perfume bottles made from turquoise glass and also marble statues. There's a giant uh, bronze bronze fish hooks from an, an ancient Roman fishing farm. So in other words, they're digging... The subway out, and as they're doing it, they start running into all this Roman artifacts and treasures wow. throughout all of history. Right? They dug down uh, deep enough that uh, they they got to the I guess time where no one was actually li- living where Rome is today. Yeah. Right. So they in this dig, they're looking all through Roman history through the ground, and That's so archaeologists crazy. are in there just looking at all this stuff. They're pulling. They pulled forty thousand artifacts out of the ground. Oh my goodness! And so as they built the subway. They built it with this theme. The lowest part of the subway is the beginning of the Roman Empire. 
Oh, like, cool. All the way back. And so you, as you come up to the surface, as you're walking through on the walls and – They uh, just have pictures of John Stamos. They could. <laughs> but, I mean, they have all the, the history on the wall and stories. They have all the artifacts and display cases. And so it's like you're, you're in a subway, but it's a museum they created of Roman history. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so from the the bottom portion all the way to the top, you walk through all all aspects of Roman history throughout time. Wow. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Whereas I, I kind of have the feeling here, if we dug a subway, we just sort of just plow through everything and complain if we had to stop. Yeah, dinosaur bone, get it out of the way. Uh, give it to the dog. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. So, Terry, I'm curious to know if anything like this has ever happened to you. Have you ever left your kid anywhere or done something that may have put him in temporary danger? Not yet. Okay. It's coming. But Don't he's worry. Only, he's only six. So yeah. No problem. So I love this. Uh, well, I love it because it had a happy ending. So there were some tense moments for a mother in the United Kingdom after her toddler locked himself in her car. Mm. But for the 14-month-old, it was nothing but a good time. Christy Green was loading groceries into her car when her son Brandon locked himself in the car. Green posted a picture to her Facebook page that showed Brandon standing in the driver's seat with a huge smile on his face. Thank you to the amazing guys who rescued my cheeky monkey, which I think is what we call Matt on the show here, Mm. after locking himself in the car today, she wrote. He was clearly traumatized by the whole ordeal. Brandon was freed when firefighters smashed the rear window of the car. See, now that's scary because, you know, you always hear about kids being left in the car or animals being left in the car and, you know, it gets a little too hot in there and they they pass away or they, yeah, they die. Um I did go to – Now, in this case, what happened, the mom was loading groceries in the back of the car. She set her keys down inside the ha- – oh, it was a hatchback, man. right? So she set the keys down, loading the groceries in, and then she turns around and closes the door, forgets that the keys are in there. Right. And her boy runs over and locks the door because he's having fun. Yeah. And it was fine. And the picture is great. He's up there grabbing the steering wheel. He's smiling. The firefighters <laughs> are playing with him as they're trying to get the door open. Then he reaches down into the coin cup and grabs a penny and tosses it in his oh, mouth. Oh, no. They decide, okay, that's when they bust the window and stop trying to just open the door. Hopefully he didn't turn on the cigarette lighter. No. I mean, do they even have cigarette lighters anymore? Most cars anymore? don't anymore. They just have, they, it's now just a power yeah. jack, basically. So, but, yeah, so when the kid swallowed a button or a penny or something, that's when they busted the window and got him out. It's not like you can reason with a 14-month-old, no. come on, unlock the door. No, you can do it. He thought you were having fun. So one time when we were looking at a place to rent, we uh, were in the upstairs section of the house, and my daughter, who must have been – Gosh, she must have been two years old at the time. She went into one of the bedrooms, closed the door, and locked it. Mm. And so she was in there for an hour, and all we could do during the hour was, as they were trying to find the keys to unlock that door, we were slipping our credit cards under the door so that it was kind of a game, you know, that she would pull them. And, you know, we were slipping pieces of gum under the door, just anything that she would want to pull and think it was a fun, good time. We ended up having to borrow a ladder from the neighbor, and luckily the the window from the outside was open, and we were able to get her out that way. But that was pretty scary as well. Luckily, it wasn't in a heated car. (sighs) Just wait. If it hasn't happened to you, something like that will happen, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I'm glad I had a happy ending there. Here's another weird one. A mix-up at a funeral home. Have you ever heard of something like this? Yeah. 
Mourners arrived at a Flint, Michigan funeral home to pay their respects and found a stranger in the casket. I told them that ain't our mama, said Maurice Dunn. Dunn said he had to put his mother Alice Dunn to rest last week, but when the family showed up to the funeral home to say their goodbyes, they were stunned. It was a total stranger dressed in the clothing that my brother Joey picked out and the wig selected for our mother, Dunn said. The wrong person was put into their mother's casket. Dunn said once he alerted employees at Swanson Funeral Home there had been a mix-up. He said the employees denied it. No, that's your mom. (laughs) Oh, it is. The funeral staff insisted that it was our mother and that a name band is the reason why he knew it was our mother. Dunn said. Dunn's brother said the funeral home eventually brought out their mother. It was very unprofessional, they said. You know, this reminds me of something that happened. Uh, We invited a couple of young men over to our house, and we had a picture of where we were married, the building where we were married. And one of these young men said, oh, I know that. That's in Manti, Utah. And actually, we said, no, actually, uh, we were married in Logan, Utah. And he's like, no, that's Manti. Hmm. And my wife said, well, uh, it was it was our wedding day. Is it a picture and... of you standing in front of said building? Yes. Okay, yeah, I think you'd know was, where that was. It's our wedding day. It, it We're be, in the picture. It would be different if it was just a picture of the building. <laughs> and this, right? Then you can, okay, yeah. we'll have a discussion, but you're standing in front of the building. This kid yeah. did not believe us. That's great. No, that's Manti. Yeah, that's great. All right. <laughs> We'll go with that, sure. Yeah, the, this story of the funeral home, the fact that they – we've had several stories where the wrong body's in there and then they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then, you know, just a mistake. And, I mean, just the idea of just making that mistake on that kind of a day in that yeah. moment is kind of horrible for the family. But when the employees start saying, no, that's your mom. And you're like, I know who my mom is. That's not my mom. No, seriously. And they, the reason was because the tag on the toe – Yeah. They had like well, a barcode and they scanned it and it showed up as this other woman, as the correct woman, even though it was the wrong one. They made a mistake somewhere along the road. But someone just sat there denying the fact that there was a mistake. See, if you ever wondered why in hospitals they there are so many checks on the tag, like they oh, scan yeah. that thing like crazy, this oh. is why. Oh, my goodness. They scanned mine. When I was in with both of my kids, they'd scan the, the, you know, the wristband on me. They scanned my wife. They scanned the kid. They make sure everything's okay. They question every person that walks in the room. I would have loved to have been there for that conversation. How well do you really know your mother? Are you sure? I think people change. <laughs> do you really? You know, kind of oh, my goodness. The nerve. The noive. Well, hopefully something like that never happens to you. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with our guest, Lisa Ferentz, the author of Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. I'm interested to hear, uh, interested in hearing what she has to say when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is away sick today, and uh, I think for the next couple of days, too. You know, your thoughts have profound effect on many aspects of your well-being. An individual's behavioral choices, their self-confidence, feelings of self-worth and self-esteem, all can be affected because thoughts can have a negative and lasting impact. 
Well, our guest, Lisa Ferrance, is a clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and a clinical consultant to practitioners and mental health. And she's here to explain how our mental and physical health are impacted by our thoughts and the importance of thinking positive. Lisa, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Great to have you. And, you know, I'm, I saw the book... Uh, with a pair of ruby sneakers on it on a yellow brick road. And I'm, I'm curious to know how you came up with that image and, and what was the idea behind this book? Sure. So the book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. And, uh, you know, the inspiration really is The Wizard of Oz, how Dorothy spends the whole movie trying to find her way back home. And she believes that the wizard has the answers. And then, of course, when she gets to the Emerald City, she discovers that the wizard is just a short guy behind a curtain, and he doesn't have any power. But then there's this beautiful moment where the good witch comes back and basically says to Dorothy, look at your own feet. You've been wearing the ruby slippers all along. And so I love that metaphor as a therapist because it's an opportunity to remind people about their own inner wisdom. And as you and I are going to talk about today, the words, the thoughts that we carry in our head, that monologue that we hold in our head, really does profoundly influence our mood, our behavioral choices, all the things that that you alluded to. We put Ruby sneakers on the cover um, because we wanted this to resonate for men as much as for women and for teenagers as much as for adults. So this book really is for anyone and everyone who wants to tap into that inner wisdom, their resiliency, their strength, and learn some more positive, hopeful ways to think about themselves and to think about the world. Okay, so I know you're going to talk about this in here in just a minute, but just overall, how, how is it that our thoughts can have an impact on our overall health? So, excuse me, I want to, I want to give you a, a couple of quotes that I think really kind of emphasize this. And the, the first is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, we are what we think about all day long. And the second is from William James, who said, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. So the way that we think throughout the day has subtle and not so subtle effects on our mood, on what we literally feel in our body, whether it's tension and stress or it's comfort and relaxation. People don't realize it, but you know, when you walk around with particular thoughts in your head throughout the day, it impacts your posture, it impacts whether or not you're making eye contact with other people, and that's certainly then going to play out in terms of the way people begin to interact with and relate to you, and uh, definitely impacts just our overall well-being. If we're walking around with thoughts that are negative or self-effacing or destructive, we're going to be less likely to engage in self-care. So that will translate into our medical and our mental well-being as well. Well, Lisa, I'm super excited that you're on the show with us. And we we love all the guests that we have here on the show. And you mentioned posture. We have one of our, our, we call him our health evangelist. He's always talking about, you know, certain foods that we eat and our posture. And so every time he's here, he's, you know, he's been effective enough that we're always standing when he's in the room. (laughs) So I'm hoping you can help me out too, because, uh, yeah, really, when you think about it, all of our actions 
that we perform throughout the day, whether good or bad, are starting out as thoughts. It's all starting from thoughts. And, you know, as you mentioned, our negative thoughts can have a significant impact as well as our positive thoughts. But uh, in your book, you you mention some of the the common negative thoughts that we have that can have an effect on our success. What are those three common negative thoughts that we tend to have? Well, Jeff, I wish there were only three, unfortunately, because <laughs> <laughs> there are lots and lots. But uh, I think there's a little bit of a kind of a universality to some of this, you know, that a lot of us are, are prone to thoughts that are either perfectionistic or highly critical or judgmental or even shaming. And I, you know, my specialty is working with folks who come from a history of trauma, abuse, or neglect. And so for those folks, it's even more common that their thoughts are going to be shaming. So thoughts like, I'll never be good enough, or, um, you know, nobody is trustworthy, I'll never feel safe in the world, Um, I made my bed, now I have to lie in it. That's actually a really common one that doesn't allow people to change their mind or to move beyond the choices that they made at an earlier time in their life. Um, Another very common one is, if I'm afraid, therefore I can't. So I, in the book, I, I work very hard to kind of shift that into be afraid and do it anyway, because many people are kind of stopped in their tracks by a sense of fear or anxiety. And although those are very normal things to feel, they don't have to be roadblocks, you know, in our forward movement and progress in life. So knowing that we can be afraid and still move ahead get the support that we need, sort of check out the circumstance, see if there's extra resources that we need to bring on board. And certainly in some situations when we do feel afraid, it's our body letting us know this is an unsafe situation and, you know, we shouldn't move forward with it. But we want to, we don't want to go to that sort of automatic assumption that just because I'm feeling fear or anxiety, you know, doesn't mean that I can't move ahead in my life. Um, I think the other thing that people often think is that they have to put self-care in the back burner so that they can take care of others. And I believe very strongly that we're only as effective with other people in our lives as the extent to which we take care of ourselves personally. So I think that's really important. Um, I think another really common thought that people have is kind of assuming that what other people are dealing with or feeling is always going to be more important Um, and more traumatic than what they're dealing with. So I work very hard with my clients to discourage them from comparing their circumstances, their pain, uh, to other people. Because, you know, all that matters is is what we're feeling and, and what we're struggling with. And I guess one other very common one is that people tend to make decisions, and this is back to thoughts again, we make decisions either from what was in the past or the potential about what we think could be in the future, rather than making decisions from what is. And so when we go to our thought process, it's important when we're making a big decision that we don't rely on how it used to be or how we think it could be, but but really do an honest, authentic assessment of how is it? How is it for me now? And that could apply to a relationship, you know, somebody who's contemplating leaving a relationship that's not fulfilling, that can certainly apply to somebody who's contemplating leaving a job or a workplace environment because it doesn't feel supportive or validating. And again, most people tend to make decisions based on, well, it used to be good, or I'm hoping it could be good again, rather than really focusing on what is. 
Yeah. You know, and as you were speaking, I was thinking of different examples of situations in which, you know, someone might feel fear and how if we can work through that fear, it actually turns into a positive experience. You know, I think of people that for me, especially, I don't think I went on a, a really big roller coaster until I was 20 or so. I was always afraid to go on those, you know, or somebody uh-huh. that uh, that feels afraid to compete in a sport or – and I know you have an example of this that we can talk about in a second, a, peer of, a fear of public speaking. And yet mm-hmm. once I started going on those roller coasters, I had a great time. And I think yeah. that fear – actually led to and transformed into this feeling of joy and thrill that I wouldn't have had otherwise. You're exactly right. And so what what often we perceive to be a risk or a challenge can really in actuality be an opportunity. And I think you gave a really lovely example of that, that it's something that you were afraid of and that felt risky and, you know, felt, you know, maybe too challenging or overwhelming you were actually able to access that inner courage and confront it, and then it became an opportunity for joy. So it's wonderful when we figure that out, that some of the stuff in life that really we have been afraid of or that has been depriving us of, you know, going out of our comfort zones and trying new things, because there is such a thing as healthy risk-taking, you know. There's certainly unhealthy risk-taking that we want to discourage people from doing, but healthy risk-taking, allowing ourselves to go outside of our comfort zone and, and push ourselves, you know, in, in small but and safe ways, can really enrich our lives quite, quite profoundly. So give us another example or two of, of this principle. And I know that uh, you mentioned a client that has a, a fear of public speaking and how he yeah. almost let that fear impact his advancement at work. So tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe another example. Sure, sure. So uh, this is a lovely guy that I work with for a period of time in therapy, and um, he was quite good at his job. He worked um, for a big computer company and was very, very bright and very good at his job. And the higher-ups saw very quickly that he had tremendous potential. And so they began to really encourage him to move up the ladder and to take a, a, a job with much more authority and Although a part of him really wanted to do that, he was very anxious about it and talked a lot about it in therapy because he knew that a part of that job description would include a lot of public speaking. He would have to run all of the staff meetings, and sometimes there'd be 100 people in the room, and he would have to give a lot of reports back to um, other members in the company. And he, this guy had what is really the number one social phobia, which is the fear of public speaking. And so he decided in his own head, again, going back to the thought process, well, because I am so, so desperately afraid of public speaking, it's kind of a no-brainer. I cannot get promoted. I cannot, you know, move up the ladder. And, and that's kind of where he stayed, and he was stuck, and he was not happy because he was bored, and he wasn't really using the full, his full potential. But again, that fear about speaking in public really kind of hijacked him taking this healthy risk and enriching his life and moving forward in his life. And so in therapy, we talked about how fear did not have to be a deal breaker. It could be something that we could work with and work through. And he did a couple of really cool things. He actually went to Toastmasters, which is a wonderful organization that gives people a very safe platform 
to practice public speaking and gives them some very concrete tools about how to, you know, sort of manage and navigate your nervousness and, um, you know, what makes a good speech and, and that sort of thing. And so he began to do that. And although he really was terrified, to his great, you know, great car, he accessed that courage. And to his great credit, he was able to stay with Toastmasters and really start to gain some fundamental skills. Um, we role-played in therapy as well, and I continued to give him resources to help soothe him and comfort him as he would experience the anxiety. Because the anxiety doesn't go away, right? That's not the goal. And the fear doesn't even go away. It's just learning how to work with it and not fight it and actually bring comfort to it. And that, that calmed him down. And that kind of brings us full circle, Jeff, because when he brought comfort to it, that was totally connected to self-talk again. Right. That was the way he would talk to himself in his head, kind of both normalizing the anxiety and the fear that he felt, but also giving himself a very positive pep talk and saying, I can do this. And what's the worst that happens? You know, so I stumble or I make a mistake. Uh, It's going to be okay. I can do this. I can do this. And again, it was those positive thoughts, I think, that really kind of carried him and buffered him and, and got him through the Toastmaster experiences and he decided to take this promotion. And I don't want to totally sugarcoat it because for the first couple of months, it was a, it was a genuine struggle for him. He was very apprehensive, very nervous, spent a lot of time in the bathroom before giving, you know, the, the staff reports. But over time, because he continued to deal with his fear in very compassionate ways rather than shaming himself, and that's a really key point, because he could approach it with a lot of empathy and self-compassion. He really learned to navigate it. It calmed down pretty dramatically. And the wonderful sort of punchline to the story is that he actually went on to be a motivational speaker in his company. And now he trains all around the country, and he speaks in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and, and has tremendous ease doing that. So it was a wonderful example of somebody who, you know, was really being held back by fear and learned how to talk to himself in ways that were soothing and compassionate and positive and, you know, worked hard and practiced and got some resources and skills and really overcame that fear. I love that. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jerry Seinfeld's joke about how, uh, the number one fear that uh, or the number two no the number one fear that people have is public speaking and the number two fear that they have is death so that means if they're at a funeral they'd rather be in the in the casket than the casket. giving the eulogy <laughs> <laughs> It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. Well, I really appreciate that example. Let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion with you and uh, maybe talk about some more examples where this uh, line of positive thinking will help us out. Her name is Lisa Ferentz, and she is a clinical social worker, and uh, her book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. And we'll continue this discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. the program. We're speaking with Lisa Ferentz, who is the author of the book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. 
And uh, Lisa, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Jeff. So, you know, earlier we we talked about the example of riding on a roller coaster and how some people, including, you know, me at one point, would not go on these roller coasters because we were afraid of them. You know, we we didn't like the feeling that we got while riding them or afraid something might happen. But, uh, you know, that is something that really doesn't have much significance. If I decided I wasn't going to go on a roller coaster, it really wouldn't change my life in the grand scheme of things. But there are certain things that... Maybe we choose not to follow through with because of a fear that we have that really could have a lasting impact on our lives. And one example uh, is uh, or a couple of examples, relationships and uh, our our jobs. So right. what is it that we can do to get past that fear? Because obviously, like I said, these are things that affect that have an impact on the, the course of our lives. Absolutely right. So if somebody is walking around with a negative thought that says, I made my bed, now I have to lie in it, as you can imagine, that can keep them stuck, you know, for years and years and years in either an abusive or neglectful or unfulfilling relationship, and it can certainly, you know, keep them in in a job that is not gratifying. Um, If people walk around with a thought that says, this is as good as it gets, that's something else that kind of keeps us stuck, almost puts a glass ceiling in a way on the extent to which we can continue to evolve and self-actualize. So these are very powerful thoughts, and they do have very significant impact you know, for, for many people on uh, many different arenas of their lives. And I actually think the first step in the process is inviting people to start to notice the kinds of messages that are in their head. You know, what is that monologue? What's on that tape? I think it's something that we're so used to and it's been so normalized for us that the average person doesn't stop to really think about what am I thinking about? You know, what are the three or four really dominant thoughts that often show up throughout the day in my life? Um, That's really sort of step one is just to increase awareness and to start to notice those thoughts. I always want to add the caveat of noticing without shaming or judging because that's sort of a nail in the coffin once you do that, that that actually solidifies and strengthens the thought. So we want to be able to notice these thoughts and have have greater awareness about what's on that tape, what's on that monologue that I actually listen to throughout the day, whether I'm conscious of it or not. And I want to notice that in a very compassionate and gentle kind of way. And then I think step two is a willingness, and this is a part that definitely takes courage, and sometimes it takes the support of a therapist, and that is a willingness to reevaluate those thoughts, because most of us, again, go through life with this tape playing, and I want to point out that many of the messages that we carry are messages that were given to us by people in our lives who we trusted and loved, and so we did not challenge or question the messages that we got, even if those messages were negative, like you're not smart or you'll never amount to anything or, you know, don't bother trying or you don't deserve to be treated with respect. We don't challenge those messages because, again, they were given to us by people in our lives who were supposed to be trustworthy and were supposed to care about our well-being. And so it's not really until often much later in life that people do this, begin this process of 
sort of taking a second look at some of those thoughts. And then I always encourage people to ask this very basic but critically important question, and that is, do these thoughts either hinder my self-esteem or enhance my self-esteem? And believe it or not, it's, it's kind of as simple and profound as that. Because if I'm carrying a thought that does nothing to help my sense of self-worth, that actually makes me feel bad about myself, that is a thought that's held me back in many arenas of my life, then I have to start to be curious about why would I continue to want to hold that thought? Why would I, you know, what am I getting from that? What's the benefit? And it can be a very powerful moment for somebody when they actually realize, like fully, fully feel the impact of that negative thought and realize that's done me no good. You know, and if anything, that thought is part of why I have either been walking around with anxiety or depression or why it's very difficult for me to allow myself to trust people and get close to people and have satisfying relationships or why I feel like I'm stuck in a dead-end job or, or why I struggle as a parent, you know, being compassionate and available to my children. So it's noticing the thoughts without judgment it's really finding the courage to begin to challenge and question, reevaluate the legitimacy of the thought um, and whether or not it's helpful or a hindrance to self-worth. And really the bottom line is if we discover that what we've been holding and thinking does not promote good self-worth and empathy and compassion, then we want to begin to find the courage to let it go. It, no longer, it does not serve a useful purpose in our lives. Yeah. Lisa, I want to I want to throw a bit of a curveball here at you. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, in my own life, I I would feel better about myself if I could lose a few pounds. Let's just say. Well, just you and everybody else. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um now, I look in the mirror and I say, you know, I can picture myself being thinner. I could picture that, but then my thoughts beyond that really don't back up that image that I that potential image of myself. So, it seems like in the field of, you know, body image and and being having good health and that sort of thing, how do we how do we stay consistent? When research um, and ideology and opinions in this field seem like they're constantly changing, when you have somebody saying, well, this diet is good for you, and then other people are saying, actually, this diet is not good for you. You need, you need to try this diet. Or you should be focusing on th- these exercises when somebody else is saying you should be focusing on, on these exercises. So I know that you mentioned that, that we, when we make a decision, we need to follow through to the end. But how do you deal with uh, differences in, in opinions and the – how education changes throughout people telling us that now this is what you should be doing. Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually work with, because again, as a trauma specialist, I work with many people who struggle with body image and are overweight. And I see, I think everything that you mentioned, all the different diets, the exercise, everything else, the, the problem with all of it is that it's only really addressing a fairly superficial thing, which is a number on the scale. And what I'm really interested in when I work with people who have body image issues or weight issues is to go underneath that because I don't think it's about the food at the end of the day. Um, I think it's more about what is the extent to which you believe you deserve to be healthy and deserve to be treated with love and respect and what's the extent to which 
that's been modeled for you, you know, again, growing up in your family of origin and in your present relationships. So I think for people who are grappling with issues around weight and body image, it's you got to dig deeper. It's not because there is no one diet. There is no magic bullet, you know, no matter what any research or article says. And um, I think what, what I've watched in my career as a therapist, when I see people who can sustain whatever healthy behavior they choose to take on, it has really nothing to do with the healthy behavior. It has to do with that deeper thought that says, I am worthy of this. I, I want this for myself because I love myself enough to want to be, you know, healthy, well, strong, whatever words speak to you. So I think for people who still don't really have a sense of genuine self-worth and and self-compassion, it resonates to hurt yourself. It resonates to do destructive behaviors. When you hold shame about something, it resonates to do destructive behavior. But when you truly love yourself, and I don't in any way mean this in a narcissistic sense, I mean this in a really healthy, authentic, um, very calm feeling of, I am worthy. Like, that's the bottom line. Like, no questions asked, no second-guessing it. Regardless of the things that have happened in my life or the things that have been done to me, I believe and accept and understand that fundamentally I am a lovable, worthy, decent, good human being who deserves to be uh, treated with respect, and that includes... Um, me treating with my, myself with respect. And so if we instead, if we don't look at calories, but instead we start to look at the choices that people make around food and eating, and are those choices emblematic of respecting their body, or are those choices about not caring about the body? So I think you have to come at this from a deeper psychological and emotional place, um, because I don't think that any one diet or, or any particular type of exercise will enable a person to sustain taking care of themselves. That, that comes from a very deep core place of self-love and, and worthiness. And I think that's where we have to go to. It's, a, it's, a, it's deeper work. That is such good advice. Lisa, uh, in closing here, we, what we like to do on the show is, is have our guests share with us the one thing, the one thing that, that we can do today that can, that can result in a positive change in our lives. And in this case, it, it would be with our thoughts. What can we do to, yeah. to get our thoughts in the right place so that we can make that change? You know, I think Brene Brown, who's done a lot of work in the field of, of self-compassion, says, talk to yourself like you would to someone you love. And so I think if we could invite your audience to, again, pause throughout the day, notice how they are talking to themselves, and then kind of rewind the tape and say that same thought again, but say it as if you were saying it to someone you love. And notice that typically there's a shift. There's more tenderness, and it's kinder, and it's less judgmental. Um, The other strategy that I have my clients use a lot is if they can't come up with a a, a gentler, kinder way to talk to themselves, I ask them to think about a resource in their life, somebody who they know really loves and cares about them. And then just, again, pause and listen to the thought and then say, you know, let's say your grandma is the loving resource, right, to pause and say to yourself, how would my grandmother say that to me? So that's another way that you can begin to challenge that negative tape and begin to bring on board messages that are more nurturing and and positive. And believe it or not, the best resource that you can actually use is if you have a pet. Because 
pets love us completely unconditionally, right? No matter what we do, that dog waits for you and can't wait to see you when you walk in at the end of the day, same with your cat. So to just ask yourself, how would my dog say that to me? How would my cat say that to me? I saw a wonderful sign once that said, be the person your dog thinks you are. So <laughs> if, we, if we take on, if we take in these resources and we just pause and we say, is there a way that I could say that thought? In, in, in a tone that's gentler or kinder, you know, how would I say it to somebody I love? How would somebody who loves me say it to me? Those are very concrete ways that people can begin to reshape their thought process from one that is judgmental and critical to one that is uh, kinder and more empathic. And boy, once you have that inner voice that can speak to you in ways that are loving and, and calm and non-judgmental, you can really manage everything that comes your way in life. I really believe that. That's huge. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us on the Matt Townsend Show today. Her name is Lisa Ferentz, and she is a clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, educator, and the founder of the Ferentz Institute. She presents workshops and keynote addresses nationally and internationally and is a clinical consultant to practitioners and mental health agencies. And the name of her book is Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. I've got it right here in front of me. I think I'm going to confiscate it and uh, take it home for some reading and study on my own. Lisa, thanks again. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're celebrating Dr. Matt's birthday, but without him, unfortunately. And uh, hopefully Dr. Matt will be feeling better and we'll be back soon. But until then, uh, Terry, you've got a story or two you want to share with us. There was a crisis at my home over the weekend. Um, Sat Uh down to turn on the TV and uh, got the DVR on and just notification popped up. It says, hard drive failure. (gasps) Oh! Oh no! I'm like, and then I, I start looking at the TV, and I'm acting as if maybe a child is is talking, is you know, talking back, disrespecting the parents somehow, (laughs) because it's misbehaving, right? The DVR is supposed to work. Yeah. DVR said hard drive failure. So then you read along, you know, some steps. Okay, unplug, reset, all that. So I did that. It didn't work. And were you worried that everything that was on there was gone? Not yet. Okay. But after I plugged it back in, it reset, and then I went and hit DVR, and it said everything, 218 programs erased. And so then I start having this emotional feeling, and because of this show, I stepped back from that moment and looked at, why am I having an emotional reaction to my (laughs) DVR failing? (laughs) <laughs> and the reason I put so much time and effort setting up the timers so all the shows that I want to watch will just record. And I don't have to watch them live. I can watch them at my leisure. And all the timers are gone. All the TV shows gone. Oh. And I was really angry. And it's like – I mean in my home, it's like the DVR is like a part of the family. Right? It's, <laughs> oh, no. I'm not sure if it's above or below the kids quite yet, but it's right there. Yeah. And and it's like something bad. So I called the, the you know satellite company and they uh, – had me reset it again. Everything was fine. Oh. All my shows came back. But I went through all these emotions about my DVR and about so, the, the effort and the time. And it's like you, 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 you're teaching the DVR to behave in a specific way. It's like, with, it's like you were you know, teaching a child oh, yeah. to behave speci- how you want the child mm-hmm. to behave. 
And then it was talking back to me. It wasn't functioning correctly. And I, I just – I had to look and is this normal? Do I have a problem? And I came to the realization that this is normal and I'm fine. <laughs> I don't have to seek any sort of help See, or anything. I'm laughing because I don't think what you're saying is terrible. It's because I think I'm on the same page as you. Yeah, I was – and I stayed <laughs> calm. I didn't like – usually when I vent, I'll like you know talk to my wife and like explain things like that. I just kept quiet. They kept, My family came down. We we're going to watch a movie. I just stayed quiet and sat there on the phone and waiting to talk with customer service and didn't say a word and then solved the problem, moved on, and then went through all this with my wife. And she laughed at me. She thought that I definitely have a problem. <laughs> well, maybe we should talk to Kim Giles about this when she's on the show here in just a bit. She will be our next guest when we return. And uh, go check your DVRs. Make sure that everything's uh, in order. And if something goes wrong, don't panic. Like Terry said, just take a deep breath. Remain calm. Call your provider. Everything will be okay, even if everything gets deleted Because it isn't a human child. It's just a machine. Words of wisdom here on the Matt Townsend Show will return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Monday morning, everyone. It's 9 o'clock, May 8th here on the Matt Townsend Show. Or 11, depending on where you're at. Yes, exactly. And uh, But we are unique because we're celebrating Matt Townsend's birthday. I wonder if this is how he wanted to spend his birthday, sick and at home. No. At least the at-home part I'm sure he's okay with. Anyway, we're also celebrating No Socks Day. This, of course, the day when uh, you don't have any socks because uh, one of them has mysteriously disappeared. Always. Yeah. The dryer eats one. Yeah. Because the dryer dryer takes a tax. That's really what it comes down to. (laughs) <laughs> you toss your laundry in, the dryer's going to do its part and dry your clothes, but it takes a tax. Yes. It takes a sock. That's how it works. I think Jerry Seinfeld's take on this is that the sock escapes by, like, clinging up against the side of the dryer so that you can't find it. Nice. I think there's some truth in that, too. Or you drop one as you're trying to carry this huge bundle of clothes. You drop it somewhere along the line. It gets lost. <sighs> or in my case, I... While holding the bundle of clothes and you drop one, you try to pick it up. And dropping more, <laughs> yes. you sort of stumble through the house. We never learn. We're like the no. monkeys that uh, can't get our little paws out of the tree because we won't let go of that piece of fruit or nut or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so good luck finding that one missing sock. It'd be interesting to have everybody pull up their pant legs and see who's who has matching socks, actually, and how many have mismatched socks. Anyway, only this this is the only show where you're going to get this type of fun commentary on everyday problems. But uh, let's continue on with the fun of the show by heading on over to Terry South, who's going to give us a little bit of a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? So USA Today's parent company is uh, Gannett Corporation. Right? Okay. It's a big, big publishing newspaper company. They reached out to the FBI this week, hoping that something could be done about these bots that are so enthusiastic about the publication. 
At one point recently, more than half of the paper's Facebook followers were fake. Hmm. Right. You could look at them. You could see that the followers are not real people. They're just fake accounts that people just throw up there for whatever reason. Yeah. They have maybe five or six people that follow them, and so you can kind of like, okay, this isn't a real person. Um, the social network's terms of service strictly forbid fake accounts, and three weeks ago it purged millions of them from its servers. But according to executives at Gannett, millions of the followers on their site are still bots, and the page picks up another thousand each day. The excise bots were quite like happy, and they were responsible for a third of the page's 15.2 million likes that they've collected over the over the time. Hmm. Why would a newspaper care if, if social media presence is getting a positive boost from fake accounts? According to the paper itself, the proliferation of such accounts risks damaging a publisher's brand at a time when the social network is one of the key ways that our news organization reaches the readers. Also... In all likelihood, social media metrics are often given to advertisers, and it looks pretty bad when a third of your likes disappear whenever Facebook deletes a bunch of a bunch of accounts yeah. and then come back the next day. It just you don't want to see a huge uh, sure. fluctuation in your numbers because then it just shows that fake accounts are being deleted and created, and that's not like right. a real uh, a real indicator of who's looking at your website. So it also harms growth predictions uh, for the company as they're looking at. Uh, their interactions on Facebook is this how, are we doing things that are good and people like it are we doing things that are bad should we change they can't really get a metric that way because it's fake it's not their actual readers Facebook believes that the bots are part of a large-scale spam operation that likely uh, that likes fairly ordinary news in an effort to appear to be an average user's account by the real purpose of the bots is believed to be to push out disinformation or advertising spam according to a statement from Facebook a majority of the Let's see, a majority of the bots go dormant after building up some likes, and it's possible they're simply waiting to be mobilized. The FBI has given no comment on the case so far. Uh, this might be, this is kind of the whole fake news and how that gets uh, pushed out and liked a bunch is people make these fake accounts, and they seem to be sitting on USA Today's account for some reason. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to get rid of that. Over the weekend, there were two situations where, where uh, World War II bombs were found in populated areas. Really? In uh, Hiroshima, Japan, Hiroshima, Japan, some people decided to spend, they call it the Golden Week. We'll get to that in a minute. The okay. Golden Week holiday in Japan is a cool thing, and I think we should do it here. We'll get back to that. So these people are celebrating a holiday. They decided to take a day, do some spring cleaning, and this uh, they found in a closet, it was about it was an 11-pound World War II bomb that someone saved. They just set it in the closet, and they shut the door, and no one ever looked in that closet. Oh, my goodness. So they opened it up, and there's this bomb, so they had to call the Ground Self-Defense Force, which is their police, I guess. <laughs> they came in, cordoned off the area, and got this bomb out of this neighborhood, right? And, uh, and so that – and uh, it's not a common thing to find bombs there. And some places in, I believe, England, they still find bombs on a regular basis from World wow. War II. In Germany over the weekend, a town of 50,000 people was evacuated because a very large World War II bomb was found. And they had to dismantle it. And because they're old, they, they're kind of finicky and they could be triggered very very easily. And so yeah. they try to clear everyone out and then send people in to try to uh, take these bombs apart. But, uh, yeah, so in Japan and in Germany, they found World War II bombs just in the middle of a neighborhood somewhere. See, can't they use robots for that now to Possibly. disarm those? That's probably how they do it. They send a hmm. robot in to either see if it's active or try to deactivate it somehow. Now, to the Golden Week in Japan, this little yes. tangent from the story. Golden Week in Japan begins at the end of April and runs through the first week of May. 
Many Japanese nationals take paid time off during the holidays. Some companies are closed down completely and give their employees time off. Golden Week is the large, longest vacation period of the year for many Japanese workers. There are like five national holidays during this week-long period. So they just give the, wow. they take the week off. It's a huge celebration. Yeah, we need to have Golden Week here. Yeah, I, I, well, but I mean, would you pull, would you make new holidays or would you pull from existing holidays? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter either way. As long way. as I get the day off. <laughs> See, because I, st- I still want to keep the days we have off. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? And so if you pull, like, Memorial Day and put it in June, you take it away from Memorial Day. See, so I, it's- might, I might rearrange some of the holidays so that our breaks were a little more evenly like spread out. once a month? Because right now we're kind of in the middle of the biggest break before the next holiday. Right, before the official day off. Right. And what, September? No, May. In May? Well, we get Memorial Day. Oh, you get Memorial Day. Yeah. But then Memorial Day to September... Well, you if get you're Fourth in, of July, and that if you're kind of in Utah, too. you get Pioneer Day. There's Pioneer Day, that's a thing. So I guess they're all there, but it's just <laughs> there. I think we could space them out better. Oh, me too. I or think we could so. just give us a month off in June, or a yeah. week off in June. A month would be good too, but a week off in June. So, oh well, hmm. just just me wishful thinking as I'm looking at Golden Week <laughs> in Japan as it come up there. And finally, thieves are stealing grease, the leftover gunk at restaurants used to fry food, and then accumulate in their kitchens has become a serious commodity as u.s refiners are processing record amounts of grease to meet governmental mandates for renewable fuels 3.84 million pounds were produced a day last year there is now an actual market for stolen oil and the president this is from the president of a new york company that collects grease talking to uh, bloomberg.com he says that he goes it's almost like drug money in the sense that on how people are chasing it down and the protection and and it's you'll see how the drug money reference comes up later it says it's almost like a pawn shop or scrap metal business in Knoxville Tennessee for instance 45 grease thefts were reported in a matter of weeks anytime diesel goes up grease goes up and thieves come along say a, a driver for a licensed collector in the area with biodiesels now making up 30% of the demand for uh, old cooking oil and a pound of the waste brings in 25 cents the fuel itself is now up to three dollars a gallon some say thieves are growing more sophisticated and many even have links to street gangs and organized crime now this is over like fry grease yeah. at the local <laughs> restaurant you got organized crime getting involved with fry grease. wow meanwhile in spite of the street value some authorities say they just can't justify pushing resources towards the theft of waste even if it is valuable so thieves are enjoying something of a wild west at the end of the day, no one cares about used grease. The grease collector president says, no one, that is, except the people turning a profit. Maybe it's those aliens we were talking about earlier. Could be. Maybe they like fried grease. Because we're not worth the trip, but the fried grease, it's valuable stuff. You know, at first I thought you were saying people stole the movie grease, and I thought, you can have it. No, they're stealing fried grease, because why not? Yeah. Wow. Huh. I might steal the grease if, you know, some French fries came with it. Uh, did you hear about uh, – we talked to aliens earlier in the program. We did. Did you hear that the Loch Ness Monster isn't really dead? Yes. Okay. I gave you the story, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the moment the fabled Loch Ness Monster was officially spotted for the first time this year, bringing more than eight months of uncertainty to an end. Nessie's official recorder, 
admitted he had been worried after a dry spell of sightings meant not one person had claimed to have seen the beast since August last year. Enthusiasts were so concerned about Nessie that Gary Campbell, the official recorder, revealed he had fielded, fielded calls from as far uh, afield as Moscow and California, but tourist Haley Johnson on Monday saw a strange dark shape at dusk in Locks Yukart uh, Bay, and said to be a favorite haunt of Nessie. Said Campbell, "I am relieved and delighted with this sighting, and so will the planet." Last year was a record year for the 21st century with eight sightings, and then she seemed to have disappeared. Nessie is seen in the winter, but she's much more common in the summer. This is why it was unusual that nothing was seen. The reason for the summer sightings is twofold. There are more people around in the summer, but more importantly, there are much longer daylight hours, and the weather tends to be better. Hmm. So that's good news. Little Nessie's back. And there's certain aspects of the story. One, there was an eight-month drought in sightings of something that possibly doesn't even exist. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe maybe Nessie took a golden week. Right. And then and then there's an official recorder, someone who tracks this stuff. This isn't like a government position, no, is it? No, it's just a guy. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I couldn't tell from the article if it's his official job or if it's sort of a side hobby or yeah. how if, if he does a hobby. how he makes money at this, unless maybe he has like a, a Nessie like souvenir store or something in the area i'm not sure how he's making profit off of this um he also goes into how he believes the creature one she as he keeps referencing it as she Mm -hmm. he believes this is the mother of several creatures that this is not the same creature that has been reported year after year after year but that it is a family of creatures that procreates and a new generation comes forward to be the creature that we keep or people, not we, we don't go. But the people keep seeing there and making these, you know, claims of seeing. So it's not like the same monster. We're not looking at something that's like hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's just, you know, it's a family. Mm. A family of creatures. See, now that's not as exciting. I think we want to believe that it's the same monster. Really? You, yeah. You, that something could exist for that long. You don't want you don't want something that has like a, a family. And no, just... I don't want the sequel. I want the okay. original. Well, my thought is, at some point, wouldn't they have more animal? And we'd see like uh, you know, it start to get to the point where you'd have like a couple hundred of them out there running around instead of just one or two. Maybe that's not how it works. I'm not sure. I smell a movie in the making. And how inf- come nobody's inf- made a Loch Ness monster movie? Have they? Probably. Oh, maybe a cartoon. Hmm. And it was on like a G.I. Joe episode, but that was different. <laughs> <laughs> well, any other any other monster sighting well, this isn't really news? monster sighting news, but it could be a, a monster problem if you are a lover of avocados. Hmm. We've talked before, there's a shortage. That's and true. And mainly the shortage is because people are making avocado toast and avocados are a superfood as they've These been branded. Are so, and so there's so many people using. But as avocado lovers prepare to ingest a massive amount of guacamole during the upcoming, well, it was Cinco de Mayo, but even like just the entire summer people eat it. Um, 
they're they're coming at a higher cost. The price of avocados has set a record more than doubling since last year. This higher price tag will be reflected both at the grocery store and in U.S. restaurants that are finding creative ways to serve the trendy fruit. So you have U.S. consumption of avocados has gone up. Mexico provides 82% of avocados consumed in the U.S. Since 2000, shipments have increased from 24 million pounds to a whopping 1.76 billion pounds in 2015. This is horrible news because they already charge you about two bucks a slice at the restaurant for avocado. Worldwide demand is up. Shortages in New Zealand even sparked avocado thefts, reported the BBC, while Mexican exports to China are especially booming, growing at a rate of 250% per year. I think we're getting to the point where we're going to overdo the avocado. Can you grow avocado trees here in Utah? I'm not sure. Hmm. I know they grow in California, but oh yeah, a lot you of might want to watch California. your trees there. Avocado growers have had a bad year uh, with uh, rain, and they said that crops tend to vary, yielding more growth one year, less growth the next. A smaller crop is expected this season in Mexico as well as in California, where 44% decrease has been predicted. And growers' strike in Mexico last year did not help matters when it comes to price. So. There's all these different factors, and it's like, just slow down on the avocados, people. But it's it's worldwide. There's an avocado restaurant that's opened up in New York City, and they just have all kinds of variations on what you could do with that. Can you get toast. Can you go to a food storage place and get avocado there, like a freeze-dried avocado or like a the kind where you add water? I don't think so. I don't think you oh, want to. No. Oh, boy. Come out as some sort of, like, paste that you would probably construct a house with. <laughs> Not, no, I don't, that doesn't sound edible. You know, add water to this dehydrated avocado. I don't You'd know be I don't surprised. You'd yeah. be surprised at what you can add water to and have a full-fledged meal. But you're right. I don't know if avocado would be one that you'd want to go with. So, again, if you grow an avocado, if you have an avocado tree in your backyard – Put some kind of an electric fence around it or get some kind of a, a robot watchdog or something. I don't know why it would have to be a robot. Anyway, just some ideas for you here on the Matt Townsend Show as we continue to celebrate Dr. Matt's birthday. He is 75 years old today. That sounds... Cole, was that about right? Give or take. Give or take a year or 10 or 20. Anyway, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our good friend Kim Giles, who's going to be talking to us about the most dangerous emotion in your marriage. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who has chosen not to come in on his own birthday. Oh, actually, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. He's not feeling well, so any birthday wishes slash get well soon messages you want to send his way via Twitter, I'm sure he would appreciate. But uh, his loss is my gain because I get to speak to our good friend Kim Giles, who is president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. And uh, she is here to tell us a little bit more about the most dangerous emotion in your marriage. And I love that tease. Kim Giles, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. So you've got to you've got to enlighten us because 
you know, I think uh, you'd probably, if you asked somebody this, and I'm sure you probably have, what is the most dangerous emotion in your marriage, you'd probably get an array of answers. So not that you need to give us the short answer, but uh, give us a little background on how you came up with this topic and what is the most dangerous emotion in marriage. Well, I'll tell you, Jeff, I've been a master life coach for 15 years, so I've worked with a lot of couples over that time, and, and I found a real interesting common thread through all of them. Whatever issues that they're having at the core is disappointment, this feeling of disappointment in this person that I married, and, and sometimes even in the relationship itself that it's not meeting my expectations. This isn't turning out to be what I wanted or what I thought I signed up for. And and, and disappointment, it, it's horrible for both sides. The person who feels disappointed because they, they don't feel like this is what they wanted and the person who feels they have disappointed their spouse, it's even worse for. And... Um, Jeff, I really believe that all bad behavior at its core is is based in fear. And there's two core fears that everybody on the planet does battle with every day. The fear of failure, that I might not be good enough, and the fear of loss, which is really kind of uh, that my life isn't good enough. Anything that takes away from the quality of my life is a loss. So what we see with disappointment is the person who who's disappointed in the relationship or, or the spouse that they aren't meeting my expectations? They're having fear of loss issues. That that disappointment is all about loss of what I really wanted that I'm not getting. And when the other spouse feels this that that my spouse is disappointed in me, it triggers their fear of failure at the core. And so what we see is, is these fears triggering all kinds of bad behavior on both sides because we can't do fear and love at the same time. We're either in a fear state where we feel judged or we feel um, gypped or, or mistreated. And in those places, our focus is on us. So it's really a, a very selfish place to be. You can't show up with love when you're feeling either criticized or mistreated. And and so then we get both spouses who are not able to show up in love, and there's no love in the relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it seems like at some point there's a, there's a tipping point because, you know, clearly, especially people that are not – uh, in the know of of somebody that is having issues, they would just think, oh, well, you know, can't you guys make this work? But it seems like at some point there is going to be a tipping point, right, where maybe it is easier to just cut your losses and, instead of trying to make it work. Well, I actually think every couple, and, and really no matter who you marry, they are going to disappoint you at some level. Oh, yeah. You know, Nobody's perfect, right? And there's a downside to being married to anybody you would pick. There, there's great things about every human being, and then there's faults and weaknesses and, and issues that will come up no matter who you marry. So all of us are going to have some disappointment show up in our relationship. The tipping point really comes with, with what do you do with it? Is it something that you can process through, you can get to a place of forgiveness, 
usually because you realize that there's downsides to being married to you too. So you want your spouse to accept you and your faults. And so often we become really good forgivers. And and I think the very best relationships out there are a combination of two good forgivers. And that's sort of the key, I think, to making it work. But often we see people struggle with that. And when we can't forgive, that disappointment quickly turns into resentment and it builds. And if it goes on for years, it's so damaging in these relationships. Making sense? Yeah, Kim. And, you know, you you brought up a good point. At some point in the marriage, there is going to be disappointment. How many people are out there, do you think, that don't realize that, that go into a marriage thinking, you know what? I married the best person. They're never going to disappoint me. Oh, don't you think everybody kind of goes in with, <laughs> with that expectation? Yeah. I really do. I think most of us, we're, we're just sure we found the best person in the world, and that's why we wanted to get married. And And the other funny thing about all of us, we tend to be attracted to somebody who's quite different from us. It's it's kind of that opposites attract thing. Yeah. And, and that over and over that most of us are drawn to somebody who has different strengths than we have, which seems like a great idea at the beginning, but it's usually those same differences that drive us crazy down the road. Yeah. Do you think much of that comes from deficiencies that we see in ourselves? Like, man, I, I really don't like this about myself, but this person seems to do really well in that arena. Do you think some of it comes from that line of thinking? I do. I, I think that we think that together we'll be a good pair because you have strengths that are my weaknesses and it, and it seems like a good idea. I also believe, Jeff, that we are on the planet to learn and grow. I, I've asked thousands of people over the last 15 years what they feel like the purpose and point of their being on the planet is. And it's been interesting because no matter who I, I talk to across any religions, cultures, races, all of them at the end of the day tell me, I think we're on the planet to grow and become a better version of ourselves. So if that's true, we're, we're basically on the planet in school. And everything that happens to us here is, is going to be a lesson to help us grow. And so I believe you're actually attracted to your perfect teacher. You're, you're drawn to a person who's different from you in ways that are going to trigger your, you and your fears on a regular basis which is going to give you an opportunity to see your bad behavior and work on it. So I, I think if we start to see our marriage as our perfect classroom and this person who's so different and, and the ways that they disappoint me is actually giving me a chance to grow up and become more mature and more loving than ever before, which is a little bit different perspective of your marriage, but I think it's a really healthy one. Hmm. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, the the two types of fear that are experienced, failure and loss. And usually it seems like the person that has the fear of loss or the one that is disappointed uh, is usually disappointed in the other person. Does that person who is 
uh, let me see if I can word this the way I want it. The person that is disappointed or the person that is experiencing a fear of loss, do you think they experience disappointment in themselves as well? Or is that only for the people that experience uh, fear of failure? No, I, I think what you're, you're really asking is there's some projection involved, and there almost always is, that when, when we have fear of failure about ourselves, we get into this, this fear state where our focus is, is solely on getting something that we need to quiet that fear. That's why fear-driven behavior is so selfish. We're, we're really needy. And one of the ways we subconsciously cope with our own fear of failure is we look for bad in other people. And we find the more insecure you feel, the more critical you'll be of your spouse and, and other people in your life. Because at the subconscious level, if I can keep focusing on your bad, I kind of don't have to look at my own. So we often are really projecting our own fears about ourselves onto our spouse. And then we get on their case about those very things that we probably struggle with, too. So that's a big one that we've all got to take some personal responsibility to watch for, that we're not playing what we call the shame and blame game and and letting our own shame get projected onto our spouse. Okay, Kim, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear what what your idea is for the key of changing this negative behavior so that uh, we don't have to have this most dangerous emotion that is disappointment in our marriages. We'll do just that. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll figure out what that key is here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Kim Giles, who is the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. And she's been speaking with us about the most dangerous emotion in marriage, which is disappointment. Kim, thanks so much for being with us on the Matt Townsend Show. Happy to. Okay. Having fun today. Yeah. Well, it is Matt Townsend's birthday. So, and he chose not to come in. <laughs> so um, I before we went to the break, we teased uh, that we were going to talk about the key to changing the negative behavior that is leading to this disappointment. So what is the key? Okay, so I've actually got a few things that if we work on, we can take that disappointment out of the relationship. The first one is we want to make sure that we're seeing our spouse as the same as us. And what I mean is as a human being with the same value at all times as us. This prevents us from talking down to our spouse. And what often happens when when we're disappointed in them is we see them as the bad one and and ourselves as the good one. And we end up kind of talking down to them in a way that's not very respectful, that's not honoring their value as a human being, being the same as ours. And I, I always teach my couples that it's the most important thing when you're going to communicate with your spouse is that you pause for a moment and remember that though 
they have issues that you're disappointed in or behaviors that you see as bad. And you may not have the same ones they have, but you have others. And you're not better than them. And we have to take a minute and make sure that we're never talking down, but we're always remembering that we've got the same value they do. So that's number one. Number two, we've got to remember that every single person has the right to be where they are and see the situation the way they see it. They have the right to their thoughts and feelings about whatever's happening. And a lot of the time, they're going to be different than yours. So when we get real caught up in the I'm right and you're wrong, we're going to end up with a lot of problems and not a happy marriage. We've got to give them permission to always be right about how they feel and see the world. And we can be right about how we feel. We're, we're always right about how we feel. But we don't, what we want to avoid is getting into a place of ego again where I'm the right one and you're the wrong one. Yeah, that's huge. Right? That's a big one. Huge. Okay, number three, we want to really have compassion for their fear that's driving usually their bad behavior. And, and we can do that because we understand their fears of failure and loss because we have them too. And so when I, when I see my spouse behave badly and, and maybe come home from work grouchy and kind of snap about something, I immediately know this isn't really about me. This is really about probably the bad day that he had at work. And chances are he's experiencing some fear of failure or loss at work. So when he comes home grouchy and behaves badly, I have a lot of compassion. Instead of taking it personally, I'll say, babe, you okay? What happened today? So that I, I'm really seeing it accurately that he's not being a jerk. He's scared today. Yeah. He's having a fear issue. And when I recognize it, I, can, I treat him much different than when I just kind of see him as a jerk in that moment. So being really accurate about the way you see bad behavior is the first step to changing how you respond to it. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, number four is we actually want to lean in in those moments when it feels hard to reach out and love to our spouse. Those are the moments that we need to take the initiative to lean in and show up with love especially when you don't feel like it. And my couples spend a lot of time playing with this, realizing in the very moment that they want to pull back away. And we all get there, especially if, if we feel criticized or mistreated, we tend to pull away because being away from their spouse feels safer than being in. But that fear reaction is the first step to driving a huge wedge that will eventually become a canyon between you. So in the very moment that you want to pull away and protect yourself, you want to make the decision to show up with love instead of fear and lean in and go to your spouse and give them a hug and, and validate and appreciate them in that moment because that's what's going to actually heal whatever's wrong in that relationship where pulling back is just going to make it worse. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah. Now, I have to tell you, Jeff, I've got a secret 
way to get your spouse to behave better, though, so that you don't have as much disappointment. Okay, let's hear it. (laughs) Okay, sounds really counterintuitive, but I want to figure out what behavior it is I wish my spouse had that I'm disappointed that they don't have. So get really clear on it and then tell them every day that they actually have that or are that, even though they haven't been. Now, I know this sounds like lying, but what it really is, we call it the encouragement technique, that I want my spouse to feel that I see the highest, best them that they could be when I look at them. So I'll give you an example. Maybe your spouse isn't very affectionate and you really want them to be more affectionate. Every time they do hold your hand or give you a hug, lay it on thick about how lucky you are to be married to such an affectionate person. It's just so awesome. I I feel so blessed that I've got a spouse that's so affectionate and loving towards me. And you want to tell them that a lot. And an amazing thing will happen. They will start behaving that way. And, And it works because people always want to live up to your highest opinion of them. We all do. That's a great one. We're amazing. See now, amazing. Now, but what happens when you know both of the of the partners recognizes that this is what's going on? Does that lessen it, or does that make them think like, oh boy, they're they're doing this technique? And (laughs) (laughs) you know, most of us are so desperate for validation that we, if it's sincere and loving, when it comes across that we really do love this person, they will feel that and they'll all they will hear is validation that they are good enough, that they do have value. And, you know, it's, it's someone who feels really loved and appreciated, who has a full bucket and has something to give back to you. Somebody who feels empty, who feels like you're disappointed in them, they've got a pretty empty bucket and nothing to give you back. So if you really want to fix the relationship and and have a spouse that's crazy about you, you've got to become the cure to all their fear. Yeah. And that means every time they're around you, you're validating and reassuring and letting them know that they're awesome and you're looking for the positive. And it's not manipulation because you mean it. You, you, You see the intrinsic value in this person and you do love and appreciate them and they're going to be crazy about you. And you'll, you'll be surprised how quick better behavior comes up. It's happy, secure people who are the most loving and good to their spouse. So that's what we want to create. Well, Kim Giles, we appreciate you. You've done it again. You're always giving us great insights and great ideas on how we can fix our marriages or, or just make them even better. So, again, we really appreciate you and look forward to speaking with you again. Her name is Kim Giles. She's the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. You can find her at uh, claritypointcoaching.com. When we return from the break, we'll be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation who uh, probably need to get out of broom. More on that when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, where we're celebrating Dr. Matt's birthday, but without Dr. Matt. And to do that, we're uh, going to head on over to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. How are you guys? Sports. Hey, Jeff, and happy birthday to Matt, even happy though he's birthday, not going to hear Matt. this. I know. How rude. How rude. Um, no, he's not feeling well, so he'll be back when he's back. Is that it's... what he told you so he didn't have to use a vacation day? <laughs> Is that, no, is that what happened? I'll, I'll spare you the, the graphic gory details, <laughs> but uh, it might have something to do with the fact that today's No Socks Day. Wait, how come I missed the memo? On No Socks Day? So you're wearing socks. Yeah, I'm wearing socks. I couldn't tell if it was don't wear any socks or I can't. I don't have socks to wear because all, one of them always escapes me. Doesn't that uh, ever happen to you? No, no, I think you're alone in that boat, man. No, come on. You're the only one in the entire <laughs> humandom. <laughs> hey, speaking of uh, misplacing things and mixing up things, uh, there's a, a Michigan funeral home that put the wrong body in a casket. It happens. like Yes, it, but here's, here's the part of the story that I don't get. So the family goes to the, I don't know if it's the funeral director or the person in charge, and they say, uh, uh, this isn't our mom. And the funeral director says, uh, yes, it is. What in the world? Yeah, it reminded me of the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where he's like, your arm's off. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. Some, th- some things cannot be questioned. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. I can't believe it. Yeah, they wouldn't take responsibility for it. Hey, uh, yeah, it's, I'm- yeah. I'm Own it. really disturbed by that. I know. It is disturbing. Can you disturbing. imagine? You're like, Grandma. Wait, that's not Grandma. See, That's even worse. Now yeah. I'm really bugged. I'm like, where's Grandma? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Where is Grandma? And, you know, it just She's like you guys place, said, it's... Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's not the, the weird thing, that there's a, a body that was mixed up. Like you said, it probably happens more than you think. But to not take ownership is, is just horrible. Own it! Speaking of owning... Uh, and you guys might need to get a broom out because BYU was swept in the NCAA volleyball championship. Oh, but BYU, yeah, I was there. Uh, but if but it, the baseball and softball teams swept their opponents, yeah. So take so that, Jeff. I'll, <laughs> I'll see your volleyball loss and raise you a baseball and, okay. and a softball. And sweep. I'll give you a uh, a jazz about to be swept. <laughs> Well, aren't you just full of sunshine today, Jeff? <laughs> well, it is Matt's birthday, so. <laughs> it's a great day Happy for Happy birthday, us. Matt. BYU Volleyball got swept in the national championship and the Jazz stink. I just want you to know that Terry was the one that handed me this paper, and he did so with glee. Is he a Warriors fan or an anti-Jazz fan? No, no, not the Jazz, oh. but the BYU uh, oh, being yeah. swept in Well, he's an informative guy. He, he has all the details. <laughs> right. yeah, today, yeah, today's an interesting day, right? Listen, the victory for the Utah Jazz was not what they'd do in this no, series. No, it was getting was to the second to round. Take a game. Yeah, it was that they beat the worst Western Conference first-round dynasty in NBA history. Yes, the L.A. Clippers are UCLA <laughs> football, Jerem. Overrated. <laughs> Always high expectations, never living up to it. So is this what you're going to be talking about on oh, your show it's today? It's interesting that we also do bring an, up the word expectations. Also another team from L.A. <laughs> that you've dogged on. Expectations versus reality. We're going to discuss, would you rather have high expectations or reasonable goals for BYU sports? This on the heels of men's volleyball, right? The expectation for this program is typically 
try and win the national championship. And BYU successfully tried, got into the national title game in three of the past five seasons, which is great. Uh, but at what point are you like, you know what, maybe maybe you need, we need to set the goal a little lower. That's such a negative buzzword, too. So I'm interested to have that conversation. Like with BYU football, is winning 10 games still the, uh, you know, the hope? Because if BYU schedule's tougher, that becomes tougher. You can't add uh, weight to the bar and be like, let's do the same amount of reps. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe less reps with more weight on the bar. See, that's a great question because I know you guys are going to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2 tomorrow or Volume 2, and are you going in with high expectations or are you going in with lower expectations? I'm going in... With low expectations. I heard it's not as good as the first, so I'm going in with low. Yeah. That's always that's the best way to go see a movie is yeah. with super low expectations because you're always pleasantly surprised. I'm going in with the attitude that, hey, it cost me five bucks plus yes. a dollar service fee. To I was gonna watch say six and you paid me back already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna treat it like it's DC comics. Oh no, that's Whoa, a little that's a little ow. too low of oh. expectations. Wow, 30% Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> I'll go 58%, yeah. That's what I'm hoping it is. Okay, anything else besides expectations? Uh, we're we're going to have an athlete on yes. who's, whose name literally means dinner time. Translated from the baseball dinner team. time. His name's Keaton Senatiempo. Sounds good. BYU B- plays Utah in baseball tomorrow. And what did Mike McCarthy, the head coach of the Green Bay Packers, say in regard to Taysom Hill? This sounds like the setup of a joke. Oh, no. It is very much not a joke. No relation to Jenny. Okay. Well, guys, we're looking forward to it here in just four minutes and 50 seconds. Yep, right on the dot. You know where to party. <laughs> All right. Have a good show, guys. Knock him dead, as Matt likes to say, and go celebrate his birthday, even though he's not here with okay, us today. Okay, got it. We'll find a way. Okay. All right. I, you know, I'm generally a positive person. I don't like to bring up the negative news, but facts are facts. The Los Angeles Dodgers are the best baseball team ever. That's that's what we were talking about, right? Maybe that was Have you ever do you ever start a conversation in your mind with yourself and then you start talking as if the other person you're talking to was a part of that conversation in your mind? Like I'll just be talking to my wife and all of a sudden I'll be like Yeah, and that's why I think, uh, you know, we probably ought to, you know, stay home tonight. And my wife will be like, what? And what was why? What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, we've got one more story for you here before we head to our hero story of the day. Were you pretty stressed during finals, Cole? You're past that point, but were you stressed? I would say yes. Yes. Well, maybe it's because uh, BYU didn't have any livestock on campus. No petting zoo? Yeah. Yeah. I guess we didn't. Listen to this. A donkey named Oliver joined several therapy dogs offering stress relief during finals week at Montana State University in Bozeman. The eight-year-old brown and white donkey was standing inside the front entrance of the university library on Tuesday. Owner Stephanie Barr says that since it was Oliver's first time at MSU, she wanted to make sure he got a lot of attention. Students petted Oliver, hugged him, and took selfies. In another part of the library, students sat on the floor and played with therapy dogs. 
Sierra Bosley says she looks forward to seeing the dogs at the end of each semester. Would that really help you? Absolutely. Yeah? What what animal would it take for you to, to be not so stressed and get a good grade on your test? Uh, probably smothered by kittens. Smothered, by, smothered kittens. by kittens. So we're talking like a whole horde of kittens. All of them. But yeah, finals, mm. it, it's all mental. It, it gets into your head. So if you can just take yourself out of that for a second, just prove what you know, relax. There's still finals going on across the country. So just relax. Just breathe in, but not too deeply because then you'll have to cough up a hairball. Anyway, it's time for our hero story of the day. A man spoke out Sunday night after his quick-thinking actions saved a driver involved in a fiery crash recently on the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway. Richard Taylor is being hailed as a hero, and he said the reason is simple. God put me in a spot for a reason at that specific time. He said, I usually don't take that route, and that day I did, and I was able to help somebody. That somebody was the driver of a semi-trailer, uh, semi-trailer truck that burst into flames after crashing into a car. Taylor was driving behind the truck and pulled over to help. Taylor went on to say, uh, I I think there was an army medic lady that had pulled on over and had a bottle of water, and we gave that to him. Then there was the police that responded very fast, and there was an off-duty, you know, fireman there, Taylor said. It was like everybody was in the right place at the right time. Taylor's two-year-old son, Dominic, could not be more proud of his daddy, He took the man out of the fire, Dominic said. Watching the video, it was pretty wild, you know, Taylor said. My son's seen it, and this was a couple weeks ago, and he said, Daddy, don't do that again. Taylor said all he knows about the driver is that his name is Dean, and he is from Brick Township, New Jersey. He is hoping to reunite one day to see how Dean is doing and share his history of the courageous close call. What a great opportunity for that son, too, to see his father in action, being a hero, which is something that we can all be, and hopefully it doesn't. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come in such dramatic ways. Sometimes being a hero comes in much smaller and and uh, more intimate ways. But we encourage you to look for those opportunities because they are everywhere, all around you. That's going to do it for the show. Make sure to send a tweet to Doctor Matt, who is celebrating his fifty uh, eighth birthday that's not right i know but he'll enjoy the tweet just the same we'll talk again tomorrow here on the matt townsend show